I was under so much stress and fatigue that my insulin literally stopped working. I remember one day I was on a photo shoot and I was so upset and I felt so terrible. And the photographer kept saying, mate, you got to soften your face, try to be a bit more smiley. Like you look really, are you okay? And I wasn't okay. My blood glucose was 14 when it was meant to be five. And I'd given dose after dose trying to correct it. And it was flatlined at 14. Welcome to the Proof Podcast. A space for science-based conversation exploring the health and longevity benefits that come with mastering nutrition, physical exercise, mindfulness, recovery, sleep, and alignment. Facts, nuance, and trustworthy recommendations, minus the hyperbole. Hello, my friends. Welcome back. Great to be here with you. I'm your host, Simon Hill. I'm a qualified physiotherapist and nutritionist with an undergraduate science degree and a master's in the science of human nutrition. In my career, I've worked with many people, including elite professional athletes, to improve their health, performance, and longevity. And I'm currently involved in research with a group of nutrition scientists in Australia looking at dietary patterns and mental health. Today, I sit down with my good friend and exercise physiologist, Drew Harrisburg. Yes, he's back. This time, we debrief on the seed oil debate between Tucker Goodrich and Dr. Matthew Nagra, which as of this recording, was updated to YouTube a few days ago. Given it was a four-hour conversation that is admittedly quite hard to follow, we thought it would be instructive to share our thoughts, the main things that we noticed and where we landed by the end of it. We also talk about my blood tests and specifically two tests you may want to request to better understand your cardiovascular disease risk, how sleep deprivation could be making you eat more calories, tips to improve your sleep, how low-intensity exercise and HIIT training differentially affects blood glucose levels, and what this means for people with diabetes, book and show recommendations, and of course, our thoughts on a few silly posts we saw on social media. Almost three hours of fun. Well, fun for us at least. Please do enjoy, and I'll catch you on the other side. One of the best ways to track our health is to regularly get blood work done so we can take a peek under the hood and get a feel for the state of our cardiometabolic and hormonal health. You can do this with your local doctor or you can use a service like Inside Tracker. The nice thing about Inside Tracker is they make the process super convenient. You can organize their phlebotomist, a person who draws blood, to come to your house or office to do the blood draw. A few days later, your results show up in the Inside Tracker app, and they provide lifestyle recommendations based on whether a particular test is suboptimal, normal, or optimal. I've checked Inside Tracker's lifestyle recommendations, specifically the exercise and nutrition ones, and I can confidently say they are evidence-based and in line with the information shared in both my book and on this show. They even added ApoB to their ultimate plan, based on recommendation from myself and others. It's also nice to have all of your lab results readily accessible in one mobile app, making it easy to pull up past results and see trends and patterns over time. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon for this exclusive offer. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. If you're a long-time listener of this show, you'll be well aware of the scientific evidence that supports a high-fiber, plant-rich diet 
for good long-term health. And while I certainly believe in a food-first approach, there is a role for supplements to help optimize the intake of specific nutrients and address any nutritional gaps. Enter Emil. Emil is a plant-based wellness company with a series of products to help you optimize your plant-based diet. Two of my favorite products being the Essential 8 Multivitamin and the Optimal Omega Plus. The Essential 8 contains eight key nutrients that plant-based eaters often fall short in. And the Optimal Omega Plus contains a direct source of DHA and EPA omega-3s, same as in fish, but from algae. In fact, taking Optimal Omega Plus daily, which contains 750 milligrams of EPA and DHA, is equivalent to eating two to three pieces of fatty fish per week, in line with the nutrition recommendations globally. To get your Essential 8 and Optimal Omega Plus, head to theproof.com forward slash friends and follow the link which will get you an extra 10% off your first order. That's theproof.com forward slash friends. Yeah, well, you chose to, to disobey <laughs> the Proof podcast rules and regulations. I know, it's poor etiquette. I've come here, I've, I've ruffled the feathers already. Headphone free. Well, last episode, I did the whole thing with glasses on for so, you. So did I. Yeah, no, but I don't even need them. For, I'm short-sighted. <laughs> so I, they weren't doing anything for me. Mm. They helped me see into the distance. Mm. We were doing a podcast face-to-face. It didn't help me read the mm. computer or anything. That was purely for me. For you. Well, I'll tell you what, I didn't wear them today yeah. because I had a headache halfway through that <laughs> with those new things and everything just looked very weird. So I feel much more comfortable. You do look comfortable. Back in the, the and, contacts. You weren't wearing a hat last time, I think. So you mm. were really out of your depth. Mm. Yeah. yeah, it you was look, a different look. It was a different look. We're back. <laughs> back to normal. Uh, did you work out today? I did. I did a um, my usual Sunday morning rope rope sesh. Mm-hmm. I actually want to talk about that later in, in the pod. I want to explain to people the, the blood glucose response to an exercise like that and mm. potential ways to mitigate, which will tie into my study of the week. But we'll, we'll save that for a Maybe bit later. Maybe for now, just... What is the Sunday Bondi rope session all about? So we we have a little group. Uh, this this actually rope this rope climbing group has been around for a long time. I think when I was fourteen, I did my first session, and back then, do you know Dimitri? Yeah. Dima? So for those who he got arrested, aware, he did during COVID. Yes, <laughs> and he went to to court and won the case, mm. which is another story. You know, he walks itself. around Bondi wearing red budgies, yeah, red speedos year round. Mm-hmm. Never wear like you think. I don't wear a shirt. Mm. Dimar wears super tanned. No shirt, no shorts for the whole year. <laughs> he voted in his budgies one year, so he walked into vote, and someone from the Sydney Morning Herald like snapped it, and it made all the newspapers and everything. I mean, this he's the most iconic man in Bondi. Everyone knows him. He knows mm. everyone. People think he's a bit like kind of scary because he looks like a big shaved gorilla. Like Dimmy, that's his name. Dimmer. Dimmer. Dimitri. Gotcha. Ex uh, Russian force, special forces, paratrooper. Mm. Um, but basically about, I don't know, maybe now 20 years ago, he started doing these sessions where you'd, you'd, he'd hang a rope off the cliffs on North Bondi uh, near Bambuckla and he'd get a group of guys and you just take turns. So you climb up to the top of the rope. It's about eight to 10 meter rope. You can't use your legs. There were strict rules back then. You can't use your legs. It's just all upper body strength. You get to the top, you come back down and you go as many times as you can. And then the next guy goes and you continue for an hour or so. Mm. How and, high? Um, I think it's it's about ten meters. Yeah, someone um, got injured there. 
well, Dimitri fell off from the very top because the way he'd rigged the rope, something went wrong and he fell from the top onto rock, like the North Bondi rocks, right? Um, so it was a 10-meter free fall and he shattered 20, 30 bones in his, mm. in his legs and feet and his back and he su- obviously survived the fall but he was in hospital for a while and in a wheelchair for a while and then he got out of uh, hospital, he came down to Bondi in his wheelchair and we, we'd like lift him up onto the chin-up bar and he'd pump out his reps. And Amazing. So, so for 20-odd years, he's been doing the rope. Um, but the rope location... Has it moved because of that? Yes. So people would walk by and want to try it. Mm -hmm. And he just felt like he had a sort of duty of care to not, I mean, imagine if it happened to anyone else. Sure. You know, and he was so great in a a strange way. He was grateful it happened to him. So what makes it more secure now where it is? It's a very different system. So before it was top anchored to the top of the cliff, there were a couple of bolts in the rocks. Uh, Now we hang it over a tree, so a a branch. And then it sounds worse, doesn't it? (laughs) So now it's over a branch. It's a strong branch and it's, mm-hmm. and it's really, it's like, it's the way it's distributed. It's hard to explain. It's not like it's hanging off this like thin little branch. It's like there's a V in the tree. Okay. So it's sitting right in a nice strong V. Mm-hmm. And then we anchor it off a long rope to the bottom of another tree next door. Mm, sounds good. <laughs> sounds so dodgy when you put it into sounds words. Like, sounds like bro science. <laughs> it does. <laughs> but anyway, so since he's fallen, no one's fallen. It's never yeah. had an issue. So we good. do that every Sunday. Um, and we just do as many sets as possible. So today we did 20 sets. Mm-hmm. It was a small group, only four of us, but it's on Sundays, Monday, Wednesday, like all week there's, yeah. there's different groups. So. And it's a cracking day in Bondi today. Oh, it's beautiful. So good to see the sun back out. Yeah, and it's quite uh, quiet because mm. people are away for holidays. So mm-hmm. definitely, I went for a swim earlier, but after this we'll so go to another one. Yeah, did you go? Yeah, I went north, north, north Bondi. Bondi. Yeah. Warm, beautiful. It's nice. Yeah, it's a good day. Yeah. Did you train this morning? I did. You did, I, um, uh, actually, I did legs Yep. and I didn't know if I had any good news for today. <laughs> and you said, well, I've got some good news for you. you. Yeah. Uh, but if I was going to have some good news, I think I told you my squat. Yeah. It, it just wasn't right for a while. Yeah. And it f- just felt, I felt restricted mm. in one of my hips in particular and I couldn't quite work out what was happening, but I've been doing a lot more mobility Yep. trying to open the hips up and this morning I, did, I didn't have a whole lot of time so I had one of those sessions where very little uh, sort of uh, variety of exercises. I yep. just chose two exercises. One was uh, squats and then I did some deadlifts and the squats I did six sets and I'm starting to feel a lot freer. Mm. So my squat was was – feeling very smooth. I'm getting back up to the weights where I was before I started getting a bit tighter. And I was going to ask you this. For me personally, say I want to focus on on a certain weight to do some sets for hypertrophy. Mm -hmm. Usually I sit in that sort of 8 to 14 reps. I find that I get more of those sets out, quality sets, if first I do one or two very heavy sets at say three, four reps. Yeah. And I feel this really heavy weight. Yeah. Then I back it off a little bit. And and when I'm doing that set of eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, it feels much lighter. Yeah. that That's seen in, in the literature. That, that's a technique that powerlifters use. It's like a super maximal warm-up set, which sounds mm-hmm. weird. So what they do is they potentiate their way to their... So let's say you you're, you decide to do 
sets of six with 100 kilos for the day. Mm -hmm. That's what you're going to be doing. That's close. Was it? Well, I did. Well, I used to do way more for, with 100. Yeah. I, I, I got up to 240 something pounds, which is about 110, 115 kilos. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, and I that's was doing good. That. I mean, you said the other day when you texted me that 80 was feeling heavy. Yeah, I have, <laughs> but I had one of those days where I was just fatigued. I trained at like four o'clock in the afternoon. Yeah. I don't know about you, but my training has to be early in the yeah, day. Yeah, me too. If I train in the afternoon after doing a lot of work and just yeah. mental strain, I'm, I'm nowhere near as strong or powerful. I think I'm kind of half checked out. Yeah. I think like on days like that, that's when you use the auto-regulation principle. So instead of like sticking, you know, to a program that you've been prescribed a rep range or whatever, take, understand how you feel on that day and maybe dec decrease the load, increase the reps, go a little closer to failure at higher reps. Mm. It just, you've just got to understand that not every day you're going to walk in and be able to hit a one rep max. That's just not how we are. Mm. Um, but going back to what you were saying, so what you would do is you potentiate your warm up. So you have, say, four warm up sets, or sometimes people do five. So you could, say, take 50% of your working load, do five reps, 60% of your working load, do four reps, 70%, three, so on and so forth, until you get to close to your working load. But then you do one more set, super maximal. So let's say you were doing 115 for sets of six, you could do 120 for mm -hmm. a double. You prime your nervous system. So it's almost like the firing of that brain to muscle pathway is ready to go. You felt how heavy the load is on your muscles and joints. Then when you back off and go back to the 150, mm, the like it just feels light. Yeah, It's a good technique. People do that uh, in powerlifting quite a bit. So you invented something very, uh, very good. Congrats. Well yeah, done. well, intuitively, it, it intuitively. felt right. It worked. I had a, uh, a pretty good session, albeit quite short. Awesome. You don't need a lot of time. If you're focused. No, and I think what you did was smart. You picked two exercises. Yeah. If you're short on time and you try to go for too much variety, you waste time in setting up, re-warming up, you warm up again every set. Mm. That's the way to do it. What you did is just f pick those two that you want to nail mm. and create a more dense workout. You're going to laugh, but <laughs> sometimes if I go into a gym and it's very busy peak hour I'll, and I can get a squat rack, I'll just do 10 sets of squats. No, that's good. That's just, great. Just because I know that in that certain block of time, I'm going to have more work in. Yeah. And yeah, for someone like you, because you don't follow a program, that no. makes sense. Mm. If people are following a program, yeah, it's it's an easy way to just, you know, walk into a gym and just decide to, okay, I'll just do one exercise today. Yeah, exactly. And then you actually can go backwards over time. Mm. But every now and then, I think that's intelligent. You listen to the debate. I did. The seed oil debate. Again, another thing that I did for you, like wearing glasses last episode, I listened to the whole debate. Uh, I did a big road trip on the weekend, so it's it served me to listen to a couple of hours on the road. So I have some questions. <clears throat> yeah. For, for someone, you you listened to it or you watched it? I listened to the first half. I watched the second half. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was very different, actually. It was interesting. It was very different when you get to mm -hmm. watch it. And so you have some background knowledge about this topic, but you hadn't sort of deep dived this before. So this is, for, for, for folks that maybe haven't listened yet, this debate was between Tucker Goodrich and Ma Dr. Matthew Nagra. And the debate was on seed oils. And so Matthew Nagra's position was that it is more reasonable to believe that seed oils are beneficial rather than harmful for coronary heart disease risk. And Tucker's position was the opposite. Mm. 
he considers these linoleic acid-rich uh, seed oils to be harmful. And this was a, a four-hour conversation, a, ver- a, re- a real deep dive. So I was sort of, when I finished that conversation, I was almost immediately thinking, how is this going to be received by, by people? So I'm interested to hear from you listening through four hours of that, what you thought. So firstly, I went into that episode honestly knowing nothing, nothing about what was the topic. Your position? I, was, I didn't have one. I was so neutral. Okay. I, that is one topic. I've never looked into the research. Mm-hmm. To be honest, hasn't crossed my mind. I've seen people post about, you know, poofers are, are a pro- polyunsaturated fats are a problem and, and this is a problem, but I've never looked into mm-hmm. it. I just didn't care enough on a personal level because I didn't think it applied to me. I understand mm. the importance of a debate like this for sort of public health messaging or, or stuff going forward. But on a personal note, I was neutral. I came in, I didn't care who was right or wrong. I just wanted to know what the truth but was. But when you were part of the paleo community, mm. you would have come across some of that sort of anti-seed oil rhetoric. Not, not really. I think it was too early. I think, okay. I, I feel like it's, more prevalent now, mm-hmm. that sort of conversation. I think when I was doing the paleo stuff, it wasn't huge part of the conversation. It was there. Of course it was there. Like margarine is the devil, butter is the hero. That mm-hmm. was All that stuff was there, but it wasn't as scientific and zooming in on the science as these two guys did on your episode. Mm-hmm. So I thought going into it was going to be interesting. I wanted to hear who was right and wrong um, or at least just hear who had a more compelling argument either way. Uh, it was it was grueling to to sit through uh, no disrespect to Matthew or, or Tuck um, it was just let's just put it this way it wasn't entertaining like I wouldn't go out of my way if, if I had a spare few hours and I wanted to get a podcast in it wasn't entertaining but it was informative and most of the the sort of education points that I picked up weren't necessarily about the the science or the the details of the debate but more interesting aspect of hearing two people mm. going to how they toe, go about how it they go about it that that was interesting to me but yeah it was it was a hard listen i gotta admit mm-hmm. um it, it was quite difficult to listen to which i think is why you well you've decided that it's not is going on the youtube or it's not going on the podcast what's the what's the outcome there it's on the youtube yeah so uh we're recording this, you and I, before this the the debate has been uploaded. But the the plan is that it will go up on YouTube. I think that's the best channel for it because mm. there was a lot of screen sharing. I think as a kind of audio only, it's going to be very hard for someone to follow for for four hours. So I don't think that's necessarily uh, you know, the, the best way to consume it. So YouTube is where you'll find that debate if you want to sit through it. And then I guess the purpose of today and certainly not the whole purpose of this conversation, but some of it is to kind of get our thoughts on the debate and what was put forward and, you know, I guess what we walked away with personally. Mm-hmm. I think as a, a moderator, I learned a lot. Yeah sitting there and it's a tough job actually because yeah. <laughs> it's very tough clearly just to listen for four hours right but to to listen to track their arguments in real time and to be looking up references as well in real time to be making sure that what they're saying is 
reliable and is what the studies are showing and then to be able to jump in. I think in hindsight, I probably could have jumped in a little bit more. There were a handful of things that I just don't feel were really clarified. Yeah. As a listener, I agree with that. I th- I actually thought you did a really good job as a moderator. Uh, I could see that there were parts, you know, in the debate where it was difficult, where you sort of had to interject just to keep it back on track, mm-hmm. um, but in, in a way that was not biased because whether you like it or not, I mean, there had to be a small bias there because you, you and Matthew are good friends mm-hmm. and you've had him on the show multiple times. I, was that the first time you've met Tucker online or spoken to him? First time we've communicated through video. We've communicated back okay. and forth on on Twitter before, but right. it's very much a, a new relationship. Yeah, so you had the rapport with with Matt sure. leading into it. So I thought I knew that about you, but I reckon for mm. people that don't know that you had rapport with Matt, you looked very neutral. Mm. Like you really played the role of moderator. Well, I guess as well, similar to your position, I was really interested in just how two people are forming their opinions more so than the actual topic of this debate for me personally yeah. because I don't sort of consume a lot of vegetable oils in my diet and that's not necessarily because I think they're bad, we'll come to that. Mm. It's because if I'm consuming any sort of cooking oil, usually it's olive or avocado oil. Uh, so I think I was, even though I, I certainly have had uh, been been friends with uh, Matt for a, a while now and he's been on my show I think I was relatively neutral in terms of, you know, who was going to present better evidence. Mm. And you'd seen the studies leading in, right? Because they shared mm. them ahead of time. Mm. They even shared a lot of the same studies. That's which something was I wanted super, to talk about. Super fascinating. They that that I found so interesting that they mm. shared the same studies in support of their argument. Mm-hmm. So it, if if let's say Matthew came to the table with a study that was refuting Tuck and then Tucker did the same. They actually brought the same studies to support their own some argument. of some some yeah. There was some overlap, which was really interesting. Which mm-hmm. actually, my conclusion on that sort of uh, point is that I believe Matthew knew the smaller, finer details of the studies a little mm-hmm. bit better than Tucker did, because it did support mm-hmm. Matthew's arguments str- yeah. more strongly than it did uh, for Tucker. Yeah, I think. Overall, I think that Matt was probably a little better prepared. Mm, I agree. I think it would be fair to say that. I I think that both of them certainly had a lot of evidence that they put forward, but I feel like Tucker was inconsistent Mm. in his thinking in a number of places. Yeah. Yeah, he contradicted himself numerous times. And Um, I have asked both of them to come back on. And so I'm happy for both of them to come back on because there are these kind of four or five main points where I feel like there was some inconsistency in the thinking. Yeah. And I would love to have them both on to chat through those things further to to kind of, to date, only Matthew has said he's willing to come back on. So I'm waiting to hear from from Tucker, but yeah. I'm still you know open to having him back on and maybe once he can sort of review the the debate and some uh, there's some sort of time between uh, that going up, uh, he might he might be willing to do it. I think for your sake and, and the listeners, it probably warrants us a round two because I've, I felt somewhat 
it was inconclusive in a way, um, even though there were some really good points made. I, it did not feel conclusive for me and I left that conversation mm -hmm. feeling very much in the same position that I was going into it, which was pretty neutral. If anything, leading towards Matthew's arguments, I thought his arguments were stronger. Uh, I think he put forward a better, more compelling case, uh, but it wasn't by any means like conclusive. You know, it, it, there, there was a lot of gray left in the conversation. Yeah, I did. I do feel though that Matt was able to answer everything that Tucker put forward, yeah. whereas there are a number of, of, of inconsistencies from Tucker or questions that he just would not answer. Totally. I thought that for me, the most interesting part of it was this, their psychology and yeah, look, to be honest, Tucker just seemed more emotional. He was getting flustered. He was sighing. He was, um, you know, getting frustrated. He was kind of a couple times like sort of leaning into the computer and pointing the finger. Like he looked like steam was coming out of his ears. And and to me, Matthew was just composed. He was mm -hmm. calculated. He had an answer for every question and an explanation for his answer. Whilst I thought Tuck just a couple times, he was just mm -hmm. dodging and dancing the questions that Matthew was asking and he just couldn't really give a straight answer and he would he would lean on sort of throwaway lines, yeah. like, you know, that's irrelevant or you're, that's a tangent or, mm -hmm. or, you know, things like that that weren't – is that famous – is it Albert Einstein quote, which is if you don't know it simply enough, if you can't explain it in a simple way, you don't understand it well enough. Mm -hmm. I butchered the quote but it's yeah. something like that. I feel like Matthew could explain everything in a quite simple manner and that Tucker mm. every now and then try to sort of over overcomplicate with mechanisms. Yeah. And but there were, uh, maybe we should go through some of the kind yeah, of top yeah. inconsistencies yep. and this could be instructive for anyone listening. Uh, so, you know, from the outset, Tucker sort of makes it clear that he, he sees epidemiology as unreliable. Yeah. Right, that was very clear. And yet throughout the conversation he introduced epidemiological data on many occasions he introduced uh, the paper at the end on olive oil yeah. that was and there's there are there's many other issues within that paper that we can get to but he introduced that as support of his position and have we mentioned what their positions were yeah you did mention yeah that. okay and he he harped on a lot about ecological data and this was a big one. So they were going through, they agreed that randomized controlled trials are the best level of evidence. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the debate centered on that. But then Tucker says at this point, he says, but Matt, how do you explain that vegetable oil consumption has gone up and cardiovascular disease events have gone up over the past 50 or however many years, right? Now, that's just ecological kind of data. That's that's epidemi epidemiology. It's it's very weak saying you know saying these two things have happened, and they're correlated. Therefore, that supports my argument. We know that there are many different influences or factors that could be leading to cardiovascular disease other than an increase in vegetable oils. Right. Right. Now, so so the first thing is that he just went to ecological data. And yet earlier he had established that he saw epidemiology as unreliable. That's an inconsistency yeah. in his approach. The second and perhaps more important thing here is he actually got that wrong. So it's, it's interesting. If you look at cardiovascular disease events 
and I, and I have to shout out to Nick Hebert because he he showed me this. If you look at cardiovascular disease events, Drew, over the past, say, 50, 60 years, they, they go up, right? But they go up because population has grown. If you look at, it, look at that on a per capita basis, mm-hmm. they're actually going down. Right. So if anything, Tucker's argument is, is wrong there. As vegetable oils have gone up, cardiovascular disease events per capita have gone down, okay. as has cardiovascular disease mortality. Mm-hmm. So his own thinking actually works against him in in that kind of uh, position. But the main point being that when there's randomized controlled trial data, why are we then all of a sudden shifting the conversation to ecological data? It doesn't make sense. Yes. And, and very early on in the debate, Matthew asked Tucker about his epistemics and what, what is his stance? What would it take him to have his position um, change or change his mind or what is he leaning on to confirm his position? And he said clearly, human trials, preferably at the higher end of the hierarchy of evidence being RCTs and meta-analysis of, of mm-hmm. RCTs. And towards the end of the episode, he was citing ecological epidemiology, animal studies, mechanistic speculation. Like it was just very inconsistent with his own standards, mm-hmm. which for me was a huge red flag. One of quite a lot of red flags that I saw in Tucker, but mm-hmm. that was a big one because he went against the grain of his own evidence hierarchy. Yeah. And I think Matthew stuck to it really well. Yeah. And one of those epidemiological papers he brings up, both of them actually cited this. This was in both of their references. So I should say I had uh, a set of their references prior to the debate that they had to submit. Mm -hmm. And both of them cited this olive oil, uh, recent olive oil paper looking at olive oil consumption and mortality. And it was looking at two US cohorts. And Tucker brought this paper up and he pointed to the fact that in this study, olive oil, uh, there was a significant uh, risk reduction for mortality, uh, those, those that were consuming olive oil compared to uh, margarine and compared to mayonnaise, mm-hmm. okay? So that was Tucker's argument. He was saying that, well, mayonnaise and margarine contain seed oils and in this study, mind you, this is epidemiology, which he's already said is unreliable, <laughs> but he's saying in this study, people that consumed olive oil as opposed to margarine and to mayonnaise did better. Yeah. That's evidence that seed oils are bad. Right. Now, that's not true because we know that mayonnaise has a number of different ingredients in it and margarine, we know that from 1960s and 1970s, margarine contained... Um, partially hydrogenated fats, trans fats, which mm-hmm. we know have a deleterious effect on cardiovascular disease. And the cohorts in this olive oil paper were people that would have been consuming those. Right. This was a 1960, 70 paper, right? Is that- it's a new paper, but it's old cohorts. Oh, old cohort. Right. Yeah. So the margarine that they were consuming would have likely contained trans fats. Right. So what he overlooked was that that paper also just directly compared olive oil to vegetable oils. Yes. And there was no significant difference between olive oil consumption and vegetable oil consumption in terms of mortality. Mm. The, the, not just the primary outcome, but a handful of the outcomes that they were looking at. And so if anything, that paper 
even though it's epidemiology, he introduced it. That paper actually supports Matt's position, if anything. Yeah. Uh, or at least suggests that the seed oils have a neutral effect relative to olive oil. Mm. Um, interestingly, though, even though there was no significant difference between olive oil and vegetable oils, it actually trended towards vegetable oils being better. Yeah. Okay. So that's, that's all kind of interesting, but I, I think perhaps the most interesting aspect of the entire discussion centers on the LA veteran study. Mm-hmm. If you've tuned in to the many episodes I've done focusing on cardiovascular disease, the leading cause of death globally, you'll be well aware that ApoB is a better biomarker for measuring our risk of having a heart attack or stroke than LDL cholesterol. The only problem is that not every pathology lab is set up to test ApoB levels. Fortunately, this has now been made easier by Inside Tracker, a leading health and wellness company founded in 2009 by experts in aging, genetics, and biometric data from Harvard, MIT, and Tufts that provides lifestyle advice based on your blood test results. With the new edition of ApoB, Inside Tracker's ultimate plan now analyzes 44 biomarkers, including metabolic health markers like HbA1c, triglycerides, and blood glucose, important nutrients like vitamin D and iron, as well as hormones like cortisol, sex hormone binding globulin, free testosterone, and total testosterone, before giving you science-backed lifestyle advice to optimize your health and longevity. Your data tells the story of your health. With Inside Tracker, get to know your story and create a lifestyle that delivers better health for longer. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started and redeem this offer, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. Hey friends, the scientific evidence on lifestyle habits that lead to longevity is clear. Now it's time to put this knowledge into action. I'm excited to announce the Living Proof Longevity Challenge, a 12-week program to build evidence-based lifestyle habits to optimize longevity. My team and I have transformed over hundreds of hours of conversations with experts on aging, nutrition, and exercise into a life-changing 12-week program that will challenge you to develop habits that lead to a longer, better life. This is a unique opportunity to gather health data about yourself that has the potential to change your life for the better. You'll start by testing 10 longevity biomarkers that tell the truth about where your longevity stands right now, today. Following that, you'll get a personalized longevity score to guide your 12 weeks of habit building that will boost your score and improve your biomarkers for the better. After the challenge, you'll retest your 10 biomarkers and see the proof of how powerful these science-backed habits really are. Head over to theproof.com forward slash livingproof to download your zero-cost copy of the Living Proof Longevity Challenge today. That's theproof.com forward slash livingproof. Look forward to joining you on this journey. So you would probably recall throughout the discussion, Matt and Tucker agreed, or Tucker agreed that linoleic acid, which is the main fat in seed oils, it's an an omega-6 fat, 
becomes uh, deleterious or problematic as you go from below 5% of calories to over 5% of calories. They set this threshold. Matt asks him, Tucker says, yes, he acknowledges that as you go above 5%, that's when you're likely to see deleterious effects of this essential fatty acid. Now, here's the interesting thing. The only study that can answer that question is the LA veteran study. It's the, it's the only study where they have one change that is the intervention group is consuming these seed oils or vegetable oils. The control group is not. They're consuming more saturated fat. And that intervention group goes from below 4% of calories to above. Yep. And also I should note, this is an eight to 10 year trial. So this is a long trial compared to some of the other ones that these guys were talking about, like Minnesota coronary experiment. That's a 12-month trial. Mm-hmm. Um, so in LA veterans, what, what you see is about a 30 to 35% reduction in risk of all-cause mortality, uh, cardiovascular mortality in the group who was swapping out saturated fat and increasing their linoleic acid uh, intake and was this Tucker brought this study? No, right? so Matt Matt brings this study up. Okay. And Tucker is aware of this uh, study. Okay. Now, Tucker acknowledges, he actually acknowledges that that study does have a benefit. Yes. I remember him saying that. He conceded that there he is conceded. a small benefit. So yes. there's two critical things. For me, that's where the debate, this is where the debate was won and lost, right here. Yeah. Tucker conceded that, yes, based on that study, there is a benefit. What he then says, which was really strange, you remember I'm moderating, I'm not in a position to jump in <laughs> yeah. um, and correct right. uh, or probe him. And he says, yes, but the effect size is small, right? That's how I remember this. And if you look at LA veterans and you see this 35% risk, uh, relative risk reduction, and then you compare it to the study that Tucker says is the best study, Minnesota Coronary Experiment, the effect size in LA veterans is bigger mm. than the study that he's saying is the best study out there. So that for me is another huge kind of inconsistency, but he did acknowledge that there is a benefit. So then Matt sort of questioned him a bit further about what he doesn't like about this study. And really Tucker could not find any criticisms of this study. It's the most vigorous study and the only study that could get to the heart of the question. Mm -hmm. And then Tucker says something that I think was very, very strange. This was very strange. said a few strange things. Which one one was this? He says, but Matt, it was a blended intervention. That's right. Okay. So what he (laughs) meant by that is that in this, um, in, in the LA veterans, the intervention group who increased their consumption of linoleic acid, they did, th- did so through a mix of seed oils, vegetable oils, and one of those was corn oil. Mm-hmm. And Tucker says, well, they included corn oil, and corn oil is not a seed oil. This seemed like t- to me was just a kind of uh, a sort of get out clause. Yep. And I actually think that corn oil probably is by many people considered to be a seed oil. But anyway, if you just look at the fat profile of corn oil, Mm. it's 57% linoleic acid. It's only 1% omega-3s. It is 
you know, it is representative of what we would consider an uh, linoleic acid rich seed oil. Right. It stacks up to all of the other ones that he would consider seed oils. Yes. The profiles look almost yeah. the same. And throughout the debate, he, he did mention many times that he thinks that some of those blended oils, people are getting benefits from the omega-3 content in the oil, which is mm -hmm. counteracting the negative effects of the omega-6 linoleic mm -hmm. acid. But as you just mentioned, it's such a small percentage of omega-3. Yes. It's, it's a small percentage, but two things I'll add to this that just, I think, highlight some inconsistency. So he takes this position, basically this study, he, I think he realizes it, it gets to the heart of the question. It is showing benefit. His get out is to say, well, it included corn oil. Now, two, two things I'd say here. He does talk about the omega-3s. Interestingly, omega-3 uh, um, tissue levels in that study were recorded and omega-3 tissue levels go up more in the control group than they do in the intervention group. Mm -hmm. That's not to say that omega-3s do not are not a potential confounder in this study, but I mean, it, it's, it's interesting that the tissue levels of the intervention group were actually lower in omega-3 yeah. than the control group. Um, and perhaps more interesting is that he takes this position that corn oil is not a seed oil, but three of the four main studies that Tucker brought to the table, the Minnesota coronary experiment, that's a corn oil and corn oil margarine, Sydney diet heart study, and the rose corn uh, oil study. All of those used corn oil. And exclusively corn oil. So how can he be presenting studies yeah. using corn oil to try and win the debate? Right. But then Matt presents this study that beautifully answers, gets to the heart of the question. Yep. And he says, well, within that seed oil blend, it included corn oil and that's not a seed oil. Yeah, Matt presents a randomized control trial in humans with a long follow-up period. It has the most person years, right, of any of those studies. Yep. Even though Minnesota Coronary Experiment had more people because it only followed them for 12 months, the LA Veterans is a, a more powerful study. So based on Tucker's epistemics for, that he mentioned in the beginning, Matt clearly met those standards when he presented this study, showed a clear benefit, Tucker then dismisses the study because of the corn oil, which then to me at that point, he has to automatically dismiss his own studies that he brought to the, de the debate. And really two of those, mind you, should already be dismissed because it is universally accepted that in the Sydney Diet Heart Study and Minnesota Coronary Experiment, in their intervention group, they used margarine. This was in the 1960s. Yep. And... And so the intervention group that was given these these linoleic acid vegetable oils was also exposed to trans fats. Yes. Right. So you you can't use those studies as evidence that linoleic acid is detrimental yes. when it is clearly confounded by trans fats. Right. And he says, well, you don't know that, but what we do know, one hundred percent, by going back and looking at how margarine was made in the nineteen fifties and sixties, was that there there was partially hydrogenated fats present in there. And that's not disputable. If at that point of the debate, Matt said, well, what about the studies you brought? They use corn oil too. Because he didn't actually bring it up in the moment. I think it's that tough, was something though. retrospectively that he yeah, figured out. Definitely. Or well, I think, you know, sitting down and, and, and kind of doing a debate live is very different to reading over things and listening in retrospect. Yeah, it's true. Your brain's firing so fast. Mm. You're just trying to keep up with it. 
But I, I think that, you know, just in hindsight, if, if Matt had raised that point about the corn oil being the exact oils that Tucker uses in his studies to show that uh, omega-6 fats are causing, you know, it, that, that they're not beneficial and they're harmful, that is where the debate is over, mm. in my opinion. Um, and the reason that I felt like it was not a conclusive ending is because that point was missed, which is mm. unfortunate for Matt. Um, but I think if they do a round two, this will be a hard one to, to – Tucker's going to have to come up with evidence or at mm. least explain his own studies. Well, he needs to explain why he wanted to discard that study because of corn oil, yet included his own studies that used corn oil. Good luck. He has to he has to kind of explain that. Uh, it's, a, it's a hard explanation, man, especially yeah. when you come across as so contradictory. Just as a listener, I find it hard to trust his evidence mm. now because he's stepped on his own feet so many times. The other thing that he said, and, and this is certainly, <laughs> I don't want it to sound like we're peaking just on Tucker, but look, I, this is just the way that the, the debate went. Mm. I think Tucker's, Probably a really, really nice guy. Yeah, and he's a hell of a lot smarter than me. I'll give him that. I mean, I'm as stupid as it gets and he did a better job than I would have done. Uh, one Something that else that he said that it did, I think, concern me a little bit and it certainly seemed to concern Matt was that he's not interested in cardiovascular events. So <sighs> Matt presented some, some evidence showing that as you increase uh, your linoleic acid intake, this is from randomized controlled trials and decreased saturated fat. There's a significant reduction in cardiovascular events. And Tucker seemed to think that someone having a cardiovascular event was not an important consideration. Yeah, mate. This this one struck a bit of a nerve with me. I've got to be honest. In fact, this right here is what I brought in for this week's Get It Off Your Chest. Because... Should we get into? Can I just go into it while we're on it? Mate, get it off your chest. Thank you. All right, here we go. I actually don't have a get it off my chest. That's all right. You don't have anything to get off your chest this week. That's I feel fine. Good. There's no. It's there's no rules here. It's mm. just if you have something that you want to get off your chest, now's the time. I feel time. like you will always have something. Well, I didn't until this episode. <laughs> so thanks, Tucker. You get you've given me something here. So the fact that Tucker says that cardiovascular disease, like non-fatal events don't matter to him, that he doesn't, he doesn't care. I think even his words were, I don't, I don't care about that. He only cares about fatal cardiovascular events. I mean, that was the point where I go, this guy's insane. Like that is an insane remark, especially the th here's the thing that I want to get off my chest. And it's not just at Tucker, but I mean, seriously, like to say that, mm. what the fuck, Tucker? Like, what are you, what are you, how can you say something like that? What he's saying is that anyone who's had a cardiovascular event and survives, well, they survived, so mm. that's fine. They didn't die from it. I don't care. But they're, they're, at, not... they're at much higher risk of having a further event. Oh, it also the psychological trauma. The state. There's the family trauma of the people around them. There's, there's so many layers to going through a near-death experience. Cardiovascular rehabilitation. Mate, the list goes on. You, your father's had a heart attack. Mm. Carly's father's had a heart attack. My grandmother just recently had a, had a stroke. Mm. Like, and it rocks people. It actually, you know, going through an experience like that as the person, and I'm kind of, you know, speaking on behalf of my dad here, but I think many people then put kind of, they put a ceiling on what they can do. They're, they're scared. Yeah. You know? And their risk of, an, of a second one is increased. Is that right? That's right. Or, yeah. 
um, their, 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 their risk of a future event is significantly increased. And arguably that their life expectancy reduces. Mm-hmm. There's, there's so many reasons to care about cardiovascular events, even if they're not fatal. But here's the part I want to get off my chest more than just that remark that he made. Just before you get to that, sure. I just want to make one point here. And that is that, for example, if you take a 12-month trial of people aged in their 60s, like the Minnesota coronary experiment or, or other experiments, uh, and you're, you're wanting to see a significant reduction in mortality, you just haven't allowed enough time. Yeah, good right? point. So you're going to see cardiovascular events more easily in short-term trials. Yeah, yeah that's a good point. Um, my biggest issue here is that you have guys like Tucker, like Sean Baker, Dave Asprey, is it? Mm-hmm. I get confused, Asprey, Asprey, but I think it's got an R in it. Guys like that who, to me, they don't care about your health outcomes. They care more about being seen as a progressive leader in the space who goes against the grain and fights the the scientists and doctors and flips the positions. Mm. They care more about elevating themselves as this leadership position of like a game changer. Mm. You got it all wrong. I know the answer. Than they do about your actual, you know, events and your mm. your health. Because you see people like Asprey or, you know, drink butter every day and he doesn't care what really happens to you. He's making a lot of money mm. off that. He's built a business off it. He's got it's fame. A game. It's a game. Mm. And that for me was the highlight of, of, of this part of the debate. And Matthew's response was clear that Matthew was offended by that statement. Very, you could see he was offended by that statement. He has family who have mm. gone through cardiovascular events and survived. And for someone like Tucker to say they don't matter to him, it's just it's dehumanizing the people mm. you know, in these, in these uh, um, studies. They're just numbers. They're just subjects. Mm-hmm. They're not people. So that pissed me off and it sort of made me think about the, the greater sort of influences out there who are non-medical, non-science, non-nutrition people who are preaching a way of living and giving public health information when they really don't care mm-hmm. what happens to you. You know, that, that's sort of what ruffled my feathers anyway. Yeah, I often ask myself, you know, why? Other than the kind of no- notoriety associated with kind of being known as the anti-seed oil guy or the butter in your coffee guy. Like what's, what is the, the motive, mm. the overall motive here? And I think in the case of seed oils, I think a lot of this is that uh, if I was to kind of um, speculate on where I think a lot of this comes from, because a lot of Tucker's argument was that, that, uh, it's it's oxidized LDL that matters, right? And his mechanistic kind of argument, and he was saying that polyunsaturated fats, linoleic acid in particular, causes oxidized LDL. That was his kind of mechanistic speculation, right? Mm. And so I think what happens in this, this group that adopt these very animal-based low-carbohydrate diets is they see their LDL cholesterol skyrocket and they need a way to rationalize that. And so this is a perfect way of rationalizing that. Instead of feeling uncomfortable because all of the evidence suggests that high LDL cholesterol, more specifically ApoB-containing lipoproteins, is increasing their risk of atherosclerosis, they want to point to something as a scapegoat. And so seed oils are the perfect scapegoat. 
because they're what cause oxidation of LDL and that's what matters most, Yeah. right? And I think we all know that the, the kind of current state of health is far more, it's far more complex than something that can be explained by a single ingredient in food. Yeah. And Matthew addresses that point numerous times throughout the debate. He says, he actually says to Tucker at one point, he says, would you agree that isolated vegetable oil, say canola oil, is different to canola oil in an ultra-processed food with many other ingredients? And Tucker says no. He doesn't think, he, he, he would, he's, to him, it's the same thing. If the vegetable oil's in it, it's a problem, mm-hmm. which means that in my eyes, he's picked one part of that food and pointed the finger of blame at that part, but ignored maybe the other six or seven things that it could be, mm-hmm. you know, that might be related to poor health outcomes. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's clear reductionist approach when you can just say, yeah, it's, it's all the same. And also, he kind of shoots himself in the foot because, correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't there saturated fat in mayonnaise as well? Because isn't there eggs? Sure. In, right. So yeah. how can he blame the, the polyunsaturated fat in mayonnaise for being detrimental to people's health if there's also mm-hmm. saturated fat in it and maybe sugar and whatever else is in it? So Matthew takes the position of, we should be looking at these vegetable oils in isolation. So the canola oil you add, you know, mm-hmm. a drizzle to your stir fry is very different to the canola oil that you get. Definitely. You know, you know, in a standard Western diet where it's coming from ultra-processed food. You just can't compare mm-hmm. those two things. They're so different. And that's where, so Tucker's trying to, falls back on this ecological data of just saying, look, look at vegetable oils. I explained that earlier. There's problems with that thinking. You know, CBD mortality has gone down. If you look at it from 1960 to 1970s, it's plateaued recently, yeah. but overall it has gone down yeah. and cardiovascular events per capita have gone down. But he's trying to pull the conversation away to this ecological data and then Matt shifts it back to LA veterans because that is the study that looks exactly at the isolated effect of vegetable seed oils in the diet and how does that affect mortality and cardiovascular disease mortality and as per uh, Tucker's uh, acknowledgement with regards to five, going over 5% of calories from linoleic acid being the threshold, that study tests that. Yeah specifically. Yeah, that study ticks all the boxes. So everything comes back to that study. Yeah. It's a very problematic study if you're going to take Tucker's position. And at that point in the debate, if my memory serves correct, Tucker then leans on mechaniz- mechanisms again, mm-hmm. which is a step backwards down the evidence hierarchy to try to rebut the point mm-hmm. that, that Matt's making. And then Matt raises a great point and says, well, look how many mechanisms are involved in this process. There's, there's, seven, eight, nine, ten mechanisms, you've chosen one mechanism to support your argument. How do we know that's the primary driver? Mm. That could be a secondary byproduct of a different mechanism. Or mm. To point the finger at one specific mechanism, it's, it's reductionist it's a big call. because yeah. essentially linoleic acid could cause oxidation, but then it could have beneficial effects on a number of other pathways and therefore its overall effect is a net positive, which is what you see in LA veterans. Exactly. And, and so that's you, the point where Matt says, Interesting mechanism, cool. Right. But let's get but back let's to health outcomes. outcomes. Let's look yeah. at outcomes. He kept saying, let's look at the outcomes because that's what the debate is centered around. Mm-hmm. Do, do vegetable oils benefit or harm people in terms of coronary heart, heart disease? He kept going back to that. Look at the outcomes. Forget about the mechanism mm-hmm. for a second. What do the outcomes say? LA Veterans shows a clear benefit. 
uh, and Tucker did concede, albeit very briefly. Uh, and then, and then obviously it sort of, you guys transitioned out towards concluding statements. Yeah. Um, and there was a point there, I got to say, you asked such a good question, um, which caused a, a moment of pause in, in both of them. But what you said was really interesting. You said, is there a chance that your position is wrong? Which takes a, a large dose of humility to say, yes, there is a mm. chance. Matthew answers first and, and gives a really great answer. And of course, he, he says, yes, there's always a chance. But based on the evidence that I've brought to the table and the evidence available, I think I'm right. I've shown why. I've proven why. I've explained why. And interestingly, again, this is where the inconsistencies come back around is Tucker says basically the same thing. He says, yes, there is a chance that I'm wrong, but I think my evidence supports, you know, what I've said. And so, so hearing them both have the same conclusion, yet watching the previous four hours unfold, mm. one of those answers seemed a little bit disingenuous. Mm -hmm. I think that, I do think Tucker probably could have conceded on a couple of pretty hard points there. And it wouldn't have said that hmm. he's definitely lost the debate, but they did warrant conceding a couple of times hmm. there, in my opinion. Well, he certainly accepted the LA veterans. He said it's an effect. There is a benefit there. And then he kind of sort of downplayed it and said it was small. Yeah. But again, he was saying it's small while citing Minnesota coronary experiment um, which has a much smaller effect size than the LA veterans. So that was inconsistent. Yeah. Uh, but I, I think in terms of like, where do you, how do you walk away from this yeah. <laughs> as a listener? The way that I see this and I, and I look at all of the major guidelines, like the American Heart Association, American College of Cardiology, the European Atherosclerosis Society, it's very clear that what matters most in terms of your risk of developing atherosclerosis, atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease is the concentration, the amount of these atherogenic lipoproteins, right? And we hear about LDL cholesterol a lot. ApoB is actually a, a, a better predictor of risk, which measures all of the atherogenic lipoproteins. And what we know is when you reduce your saturated fat intake and you increase your intake of these polyunsaturated fats, you lower the concentration of these atherogenic lipoproteins, ApoB. And this is a quote I have from the 2021 um, European Society of Cardiology Guidelines. They say the causal role of LDL cholesterol and other ApoB-containing lipoproteins in the development of atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease is demonstrated beyond any doubt by genetic, observational, and interventional studies. Mm. Right? So the consensus guidelines very much are uh, in line with what Matthew's take on the evidence is. And so I walk away, certainly, I haven't change my view on any of this at all. I think the rule of thumb of lowering saturated fats in the diet and consuming more polyunsaturated fats is a good one in terms of lowering your risk of cardiovascular disease. Mm. I take the same position as you. I think from a personal stance, for me to change my vegetable intake wouldn't 
be much because I barely have any at the moment. Um, like you, I use olive oil more for cooking and, and avocado oil. And I, I tend to minimize oils in general. Um, but th that's, I think this debate's not really about us. I think this is a bigger public health mm. uh, uh, interest, which is for the majority of the population who maybe aren't as literate nutritionally as yourself or other pe or, or the listeners even, where, where are you getting your vegetable oil? How is it finding its way into your diet? Mm -hmm. If it's coming from ultra-processed foods, then yeah, the vegetable oil may be playing a role, but ultimately the matrix of what that oil's found in is the issue is that ultra-processed food shouldn't be making up the vast majority of our calories mm. on a daily basis. And that again, we just go back to whole foods and diversity. And if you have small amounts of these so-called harmful oils or other, other nutrients in your diet, if for 90% of the time you're on track and you're eating a healthy diet, I don't think we need to be, you know, obsessing over these, mm. these small, you know, additions to the diet. I don't think the fear of vegetable oils in their isolated form or the demonization is warranted. Yeah. The evidence, if anything, suggests benefit. So for me personally, you know, I'm cooking with olive oil and avocado oil. And so I'm not really consuming seed oils or vegetable oils in terms of their isolated um, format. But at the same time, I'm not taking the position that they're unhealthy or poisonous. Yeah. They're just not a part of my regular diet. Yeah. You know, it's funny because when I was on a paleo diet, especially in the early days, I'd get most of my information from a leader in the space who would put up a blog post or would cite a study. And I would never look into the study myself. I would just mm. take what they're saying as gospel and I would trust their, that they've done the work for me. And I got to a point where I was eating so much saturated fat that my LDL was really high. It came back after a, a blood test and it was flagged as you know significantly higher than it should have been. And it was very different to the trends of blood tests I've had the six, seven leading up to that one. Um, and you know, I justified it in that moment by saying, well, because we did the subfractions, mm -hmm. and it turns out that most of my LDL was more of the the fluffy, large, buoyant, fluffy. the large, fluffy, less of the smaller, dense um, mm -hmm. particles. And I sort of justified this high LDL, but I didn't know until speaking to you about the it's the ApoB. Yeah, so let's try and break this down. Yeah, for folks, there are a number of different atherogenic lipoproteins. Atherogenic lipoprotein, essentially what that means is these proteins in our blood that carry cholesterol and triglycerides, some of them can enter into the artery wall and become stuck. Uh, they get retained in the artery wall and you can develop plaque buildup. Those ones that get stuck, we call atherogenic. So there is LDL cholesterol or LDL particles that most people have heard of. That accounts for in most most people, about 90% of these atherogenic lipoproteins. And that's why on your standard blood test, that's what you would, you would see. Uh, but as research has progressed, we've realized that other lipoproteins, IDL and VLDL, they're also atherogenic and they also meet this criteria of being able to enter the arterial wall and become retained uh, and contribute to the development of plaque. Now, the commonality of all of these atherogenic lipoproteins is the type of protein. And so th this protein is uh, called ApoB for short. Mm -hmm. And so now you can request, and I actually had blood 
work done recently and I requested ApoB for the first time. And you can get that measured, which gives you a kind of more uh, accurate prediction of your risk of developing atherosclerosis. Are you happy to share your results or is that yeah, something? Yeah, I actually have, uh, awesome. I think I printed them out here. Because you, you have had blood tests done fairly routinely over the last few years, right? Since since being on a, on a plant-based diet. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you're just quickly going back a step. So when I had that high LDL, I justified it because, you know, my paleo expert told me that it was totally normal and totally healthy. Uh, and then we did the subfractions and a, Getting those subfractions done again gave me even more confidence that I was healthy and fine. But my question to you is: if my LDL is elevated, mm-hmm. I think my total cholesterol was six point eight, maybe. Uh, and now, just having been plant-based for three years, it's like three point four. Mm-hmm. It's, it's had a huge drop. Would it have been problematic if I kept my LDL as high as it was above the normal reference range for year? after year after year, even though it seemed like most of it was that fluffy, buoyant, uh, healthy LDL. Mm-hmm. Do you think that's a well, problem? Well, it really comes or? back to the number of particles, which is what ApoB So without up. getting ApoB done, I wouldn't know? Is that So, for example, you could have two people with the same LDL cholesterol. One person has more large fluffy. Yep. The other person has more small, small dense. And because that other person has small dense, they're going to have more total lipoproteins, which means more ApoB, more potential to enter and become retained in the arterial wall. So there is some truth to that, that large fluffy is relatively better than small dense. But ultimately what is absolutely understood is that the lower the ApoB, the better. Okay. So you could have, say, raised LDL by doing a low-carb style diet and it might be you might have more large fluffy mm-hmm. but your apob is still higher than what it would be if you adopted a more a higher carbohydrate diet a yeah. more plant-based diet with unsaturated fats for example yeah that's a real possibility okay Makes so sense. it's kind of compared to to what yeah. my apob came in at 76 uh, milligrams per deciliter and so I think I've mentioned on this show uh, quite a few times that when you, when you look at um, a whole range of studies, be it observational or you look at uh, clinical interventions where they lower people's LDL cholesterol, when you get cholesterol, LDL cholesterol down to about 70 milligrams per deciliter or lower, that's where you really don't see atherosclerosis. Mm-hmm. Or in the case of these uh, drug intervention trials, you see regression of plaque. You see that plaque dissolving away. Yep. Now, 70 milligrams per deciliter of LDL is equivalent to about 80 milligrams per deciliter of ApoB. So You're my ApoB that. came in at 76, so I was quite happy. Fantastic. Um, with that, it probably could be even a touch lower. You, you, I would reduce my risk a bit, but overall, I'm I'm quite happy with that. And I, I did get asked uh, from several people about what my diet kind of looks like. Yeah, I think I eat probably a little bit of a higher fat plant based diet than than many people. A lot of people that I speak to, anyway. Mm. I seem to do certainly it's not low carb, yeah. but. Uh, I, I have a stronger emphasis in my diet on 
on protein, so plant protein, yep. the legume food group. There's quite a strong emphasis on that. And then I do have quite a lot of fats in nuts and seeds and olive oil, avocado, etc. So I think relative to, I guess, the quote-unquote typical plant-based diet, mine is a lower carbohydrate format. It's by no means low-carb or no. ketogenic. Um, but I, I'd say in line with like a Mediterranean diet, but completely plant-based. Yeah. That makes, I think I'm very similar to that. So macro-wise, uh, you know, I'd say you know, it varies, but 40 to 50% of, of calories from carbohydrate, mm-hmm. maybe 25-ish from, from, the other, from fat and, mm-hmm. and protein. I think that's where I'm yeah. at at the moment. Yeah, mine would be similar. Yeah. So I guess takeaway point here in terms of getting bloods done, ApoB is a good one to request if yep. you can. Uh, if you haven't had it before, worth worth asking your physician. Mm-hmm. There is another test, non-HDL, which is pretty much identical to ApoB and a lot more uh, sort of standard uh, laboratory tests will include that. So if is that a- LDL and triglyceride or what? So non-HDL looks at essentially at, you, you remove HDL and it gives you a look at all of the atherogenic lipoproteins, okay. um, the ones that I kind of reeled off before. So... That's that's an option if, for example, APOB is not available or it's expensive or something like that. And then the other test that I did for the first time was LP little a. So LP little a is a type of LDL cholesterol, but it's not really driven or influenced by our lifestyle. About 90% of, of your LP little a is driven by genetics. So it's not something you have a lot of control over. Yeah. So you probably only really need to measure it once. That's the current advice that, that I've come across anyway. And so my LP little a was very much in, in range, but I think it's a good one for people to get because if, for example, it is high and it's controlled by your genetics, there are drugs you can take to lower that. Okay. And ha- having that elevated does significantly increase your risk of developing atherosclerosis. So remember when your when your dad had his heart attack and you were told that, you know, mm-hmm. it runs in the family, it's likely genetic that your risk is high. Do these results somewhat counter that uh, rhetoric that you heard early on because it seems like that your genetic risk is not as high mm-hmm. as a, you know, well based on that genetic kind of marker but maybe we, we don't fully appreciate all of the different genes that affect cardiovascular yeah. risk, right? Yeah. So um, I'm, I'm not sure. I'm not sure I'm bulletproof from a genetic point of sure. view, but this is a, a, a very established marker for cardiovascular risk that yeah. we know 90% of this, this value is driven by genetics in most people. Uh, so I think it's given that it, it is kind of well-established in the literature, mm. I think it's worth getting, particularly if you're someone who has a family history of cardiovascular disease. I'm probably going a little above and beyond what the typical person might want to, but I saw my dad have a heart attack at 41. So um, I kind of feel like I want to leave no stone unturned as I approach 41. Um, So I've done this as a kind of more comprehensive uh, blood test it, of course, included triglycerides and HbA1c and fasting glucose and um, CRP and everything. I posted it on Twitter if oh, anyone wants okay. to see. Right. Um, but everything was, what was very A1C? much, very oh, much in me, range. You know me and my glucose well, it's uh, in, numbers. It's in millimoles per mole. Millimolar? 
So it's a, we'd have to convert that. So see, no, see, I, I'm only knowing it as a percentage. I don't yeah. even know what that is. Um, all right. Well, we, no, can, that's, we can convert that and report back. Fasting glucose, was there something there? 4.6. Yeah, see, bang. Millimoles per liter. Beautiful. With all those toxic carbs as well, mate. Mm. Well done. Um, <laughs> yeah, so I'm, I'm kind of uh, going to probably not test LP little a again, but I will continue with yearly blood work particularly on these cardiovascular disease kind of risk factors just to, to check in. Yeah. And I am actually going to do a CT angiogram. Okay. Yeah. Which again, I think is potentially a little bit, uh, I don't want to say neurotic. Yeah. Um, cause I'm not that concerned, but given my dad's history, I want to just have a look in there and see if, if I have any soft plaque. Sure. Yeah, detect trends and patterns. I mean, even if you did it now and then in, in a few years or even a decade, you'd be mm -hmm. able to see. Because I'd imagine an angiogram is not going to show you large changes on an annual basis, mm -hmm. right? It takes time to develop yeah. the plaque. So I guess if you do one now just for peace of mind and then. Yeah, yeah, it's a know. set and forget. It's a kind of precautionary thing for me. But overall, my approach to health is is very much the opposite of being neurotic. Yeah, I feel so healthy right now. Yeah, I feel just so grateful for my health yeah. and I tick the boxes of exercise and sleep and just eating consistently. It's, it's not perfect, but I, I kind of don't feel the need or want to fall into that trap of always searching for better health. Yeah. The sort of, I see that mentality in, in the biohacking kind of, um, kind of, uh, section of health and wellness. Mm. And it makes me think, you know, if you get caught up in that, are you ever happy with where you are? Yeah, mate. To me, the biohacking space is a bunch of people who are just chasing their tail. You, you're never satisfied. There's always something new to hack, whether it's blood glucose related and wearing CGMs, whether it's heart rate and HRV. And there's nonstop data enter that you're collecting through device after device after device. And it's just this numbers overload. And I, I actually think that for people who aren't equipped mentally to deal with that amount of data coming in, it can be detrimental. Mm. If you wake up every day and your smart device tells you, you slept like shit, your HRV sucks, you've got stress levels through the roof, your blood glucose is 0.1 millimole higher than it was yesterday. People take this data and it will impact you on a daily basis. You'll go through your day going, yeah, I slept badly last night. Mm -hmm. My workout's going to suck today because I'm underslept and my HRV is not mm -hmm. great. Limiting beliefs. Mate, limiting beliefs. I think that the biohacking realm, whilst I understand why people want to collect data to learn more about the body, that's cool. I understand that. But how much weight do you give it on a daily basis? And is it even possible mm -hmm. consciously to let go of that data once you've seen it, once it's entered your mind and you know what your data is for the day, can you let go of it and go and have a great day after that? Mm. Some people can't. I think it's it's only for a small clique of people. And I also think that there's something in, again, positioning yourself as this like progressive, you know, health-seeking, truth-seeking leader. Look at, I've got a CGM on this arm and this arm and I've got a watch on this wrist and this wrist. And and I check my ketones and my blood lactate in the middle of a workout. It's like, come mm. on, guys. At what point can we just enjoy the day? Yeah. You know, that's, that's where I'm at yeah. with the biohacking. It's just yeah. exhausting me. I think, you know, certainly you can you can use some of that stuff and have a healthy relationship with it. You know, like a, a, I've got an aura ring, for example. Yeah. Um, but 
I do feel there is this, there is a trap mm. of, you know, your health is never good enough and always looking for the the next way to kind of hack your way to, to better health yeah. or that longevity compound. Yeah. And it takes you out of the present and feeling grateful for your body That's and what so you true. can do today, right now. That's so true. I think that when I got diagnosed with diabetes, uh, instantly, instantly, I felt so I felt so sad and sorry for myself that I hadn't appreciated my health mm. in the years leading up. This, literally the second I was diagnosed, I was like, wow, life was so good. You thought you took it for granted. Well, I knew I didn't because I, I still exercised all the time and I, I cherished the moments, but not to the depth of when you get diagnosed with something or you have a health condition. And then all of a sudden when it becomes real and you think, because mm-hmm. at that point I didn't understand that I could still live a great life. I thought life was over mm-hmm. when I got the diagnosis and I sort of looked back in the review and I thought, God, life was good. Yeah. I wish I could just have it back like that. Mm. Even if it wasn't perfect, it was so good. And I, and I think that again, the biohackers maybe need to just take mm. one step back and just look, yeah. at, look at how good life could yeah. be. I guess to play devil's advocate to our position here, yep. some may argue that using some of these tools can help you prevent losing your health. For sure. That's a good point. And, and I, I, would, I would support these tools for that, for that reason. Mm. I just think it comes down it's to a, a fine line though. balance. When, yeah. does it, when does it become too much? I think only the individual know. Um, I know that for me, and I spoke about this last episode, I believe, or maybe the one before, I can't remember now. Uh, I think that when you start making lifestyle changes and decisions that actually impact your mental health, your physical health, your feelings of well-being in, in pursuit of some numbers on a mm. blood test or on a CGM, that, you know, it's the forest for the trees. You, you really need to ba- bal- try to balance out these multiple factors that make up feelings yeah. of wellness because I chased flat lines for many years with my blood glucose. Um, I was obsessed with the data. I would skip meals to stay flatlined. I, again, I mentioned this in the last episode, but I think it's relevant for this conversation. And this is something I've never said on air. And I'm, gonna, I'm about to say it right now. There was actually a point where I was so overtrained and undernourished that not only did I start to hate the feeling of exercise and I found it very, very hard to even force myself to exercise, but my willpower was so strong that I was skipping meals and exercising all the time, especially Mm -hmm. to correct my blood glucose, that I crashed my testosterone. Like absolutely so bad that when I got my results back, my mom's a doctor. I showed her the results. She thought there was something sinister. She was worried that I had potentially something really- I think you told me about this. Yeah. I've never said it publicly, but mm. I I ran myself into the ground and I had extremely low testosterone levels, zero libido, felt terrible all the time, but I was just chasing good data so mm. that when I went to my endocrinologist, she wouldn't judge me and she'd be proud of the way I managed my diabetes, mm. which is just- I mean, it kind of gives me chills even saying this. I can't believe that I was doing that. But you get stuck in this rut where you're just trying to be better and better and better, mm. which may come from a good place, you know, that pursuit of excellence and try to be yeah. your best. But at some point, you've got to let go of perfection. You have to because it, it does get in the way, not just get in the way of progress as the saying goes, but actually sends you backwards. So I got to a point where I was actually unwell, mm. far more unwell than when I was sort of early on diagnosed with diabetes. So probably takes a quite a bit of self-awareness 
to be able to check in with yourself to say, am I really enjoying my life right now? It does take self-awareness, but it's also very hard to see it when you're in it. Mm. You can see it when you look back, but when you're living with yourself every day, every minute, you don't see it. And, it, and by the time you do recognize it, it's often far too late. I mean, it's just, uh, I managed to turn around and I fixed it almost mm. entirely. But yeah, it, it takes, uh, it, it, you have to let go of that willpower. The strong willpower that gets you in that position is something that you actually have to kind of let go of and trust the process and go, you know what, I'm going to get back to good health. Mm. My willpower got me into this, this trouble. I can't be perfect anymore. I'm going to have to let go. And for me, the, the f- couple of things that sort of made me notice that I was doing proper damage was my insulin resist. I'll call it resistance in this case because I believe it is the, exactly what this is. I was under so much stress and fatigue that my insulin literally stopped working. I remember one day I was on a photo shoot and I was so upset and I felt so terrible. And the photographer kept saying, mate, you got to soften your face. Try to be a bit more smiley. Like you look really, you're okay. And I wasn't okay. My blood glucose was 14 when it was meant to be five. And I'd given dose after dose trying to correct it. And it was flatlined at 14. So I gave, I remember giving a four unit dose and there's a thing called rage bolusing in type one diabetes, which you're told do not do. So rage bolus is when you, you're so angry with your 14 that you've seen on this blood glucose meter or whatever the CGM that you give a dose of insulin and then you check again in an hour and then you see that it's still 14. So you give another dose, right? The problem with that is insulin only peaks at one hour. It's still got two hours left at least to start doing its job and working. So you might overdose your insulin because you haven't seen your blood mm. glucose come down yet. And then you have a low. Then you have a crashing low really dangerously. So there was a day when I, I rage bolused. I rage bolused four doses in a row within an hour of each dose. Didn't budge. My blood glucose was stuck at 14. I knew something was so wrong at that point that that's when I sort of had a wake-up call and I was like, okay, I need to actually get some blood tests done and see what's going on. Mm. And that's when I found the the low low testosterone, you know, poor glucose control, all of those things. So it's been a roller coaster, man. CGMs, that brings us to one of those papers we wanted to discuss today. Yeah. I want to I want to come back to a sleep study that I wanted to share with you. Yeah. But let's cover the the CGM. Uh it wasn't a CGM study, it was a HbA1c. Correct. paper. Yeah. But we were speaking about in the previous episode, you and I were chatting about whether there is an advantage for someone that doesn't have diabetes or pre-diabetes to, to work towards sort of flatlining and achieving a lower average blood glucose compared to a higher average blood glucose with both of them being within the physiological physiological norm reference range. And we kind of said, we don't think that there is an advantage. You could be, uh, you could have a higher average blood glucose, but within the normal range and outcomes would be similar to uh, a lower average blood glucose within the normal range. But we've, and we've gone away and, and, and you've got a study to share here. Yeah. I've got to say this study was sent to me after the episode. Uh, Somebody who's a doctor, looked into it and sent it across. I hadn't seen it, uh, but it does somewhat confirm what we speculated, which is that the lower the better is essentially storytelling at the moment and that there's not enough evidence to actually support that. Um, we do have the paper here in front of us. But 
and I will just say, I haven't gone through the whole paper word for word yet. I've done a sk skim over it. And, and I usually don't even want to talk about a paper until I've read it thoroughly and really asked a lot of questions. But there are a couple of graphs in here that are just, you know, fairly eye-opening. And in general, what you see here in, these, in, these, in this paper mm -hmm. is this sort of hockey stick or, or J-shaped curve. It's more of a hockey stick mm. where within the normal range, it's a very, in terms of all-cause mortality, I think it's, is it cancer? Cancer mortality and, and CBD. CBD and cancer. So- the hockey stick shape remains true for all of these three outcomes. And the inflection point in which the risk starts to increase occurs at about a 5.7%, which mm. is an HbA1c of 5.7%. Which is like the, the lower threshold for being diagnosed with pre-diabetes. Right. So if you are within that normal range, whether you're 5.6 or even here, it looks like about a 3.5%. So even low, mm. it's as flat as can be throughout that range, which mm. are, which is really interesting. So just for example, when you got your blood glucose back, I don't know what your A1C is, but your fasting blood glucose was 4.6. Mm. A keto proponent would probably say to you, Simon, you can do better. Mm. You can get that lower. You can go down to 3.9 if you, if you really try. But at what cost? That That's the question. At and what, what cost? data supports that as being clinically beneficial well based uh, on that that paper there if you're sort of high threes up to five five and a half there was no significant difference right and relating this back to the story i was just telling about how i ran myself into the ground with with over analyzing data so let's say i challenged you and said listen man i want to see you get that that fasting glucose down to 3.8 mm -hmm. what are you going to change in your lifestyle right? You'll probably cut your carbs. You'll try to flatline every day. You might exercise a little bit more to, to even reduce it further, you know, in the long term. But let's say you do what happened to me and you crash your testosterone and your quality of life sucks and you hate every mm -hmm. day to day that goes by. What is the health effect of that, right? So yeah, you may have hit that low number, but what's the impact of having low testosterone for years upon years? and all-cause mortality and all these things. So I just think we need to understand that it's, it's often going to be a seesaw and that if you go really extreme on one thing, you may mm. see something else get out of, out of whack. And the pursuit in the first place of it's getting that unjustified. lower yeah. is, appears to be unjustified. Right. It's a cool story, mm. but can you, can you show me you know, hard evidence? At this point, we haven't seen it. So yeah, it, it was a good paper, I think. Um, so do you think then that to go a little layer deeper, that time in range is a better marker than whether your uh, HbA1c is sort of more towards the upper end or, or lower end of the normal range. For people with diabetes, I would say yes. It tells you a lot more about your diabetes management. For the general population, I would tend to think that the same applies, that time and range is, is far more important or area under the curve is mm -hmm. another way people like to say it. I do think that's more important. I think that whether you're 5.6, 5, 4.8, 4 as an A1C, those numbers tend to all be associated with pretty good health outcomes. Mm -hmm. uh, and that depending on how you want to get your blood glucose a little bit, like if let's say you are 5.7 or 5, like kind of on that cusp, 
then yeah, I would say get your A1C down a bit. Or if you're, you know, if your A1C is six or above or 6.5 and you're, you've met the diagnostic criteria for type two or prediabetes or insulin resistance, then yes, absolutely. We want to see the A1C below that 5.7%. Um, but the lower, the better at this point just mm. seems to be somewhat of, of a myth and, and time in range should be more of a focus. I would recommend people to definitely stick to time in range a lot more. So with all of this in mind and that paper, does that change your view on CGMs and their use in folks without diabetes? It doesn't. Um, I still I still have the same view in, in that you're going to get a lot of data that's just going to show you that your blood sugar is fine and has probably always been and it's not really going to help you, you know, live your life any differently. You know, mate, do you know how many times I've, when I used to do finger pricks, I'd, you know, be at a dinner party or out with mates mm -hmm. and I'd test my blood glucose and everyone at the table is like, hey, test me, test me, you know, as if they just want to get a bit of a piece of the diabetes world for a second. So I'd, you know, set up a new lancet and I'd prick their finger mm -hmm. and I'd check. How many people brought back a blood glucose out of the range? None. None. Everyone was like 4.6, 4 mm -hmm. 4.8. Like most of the time, people don't need to worry about this. Like you're not going to see a crazy number that's, you know, going to diagnose some, some, something that you weren't aware of. Like most people have a perfectly normal, really great blood glucose level. So, you know, I think that if you want to tell yourself that you're perfect all the time, yeah, just, just stick on a CGM, wear that for a year and you'll see how good your control is. But for, it's not going to show you these crazy fluctuations and spikes. This is, you know where this comes from? I, I was thinking about this the other day. It comes from the semantics around the glucose conversation. So these keto guys and, and low carbers, they use the word spike, right? To them, spike means you've shot your blood glucose so high that it's outside of the normal range, right? What they don't understand is they're actually using this word interchangeably with, or it's synonymous with in, in proper terms, a glucose excursion, okay? But the word spike- So much more emotive. So much more emotive, right? You've had a spike. It's you a bad thing. You spiked your glucose. Yeah, you've you shot up. boy. Yeah, you, you naughty boy. <laughs> you've spiked above the normal range and watch this. You're going to come mm. below the normal range. And then when you're below the normal range, you're going to get hungry. You're going to eat the cake. You're going to spike again. So- Is there anything informative, informative though in terms of how quickly it does go up and how quickly it comes down? Well- I think there has been, I think you actually shared this with me offline, a paper looking at oral glucose tolerance tests in that first 30 minutes, mm -hmm. the response in the first 30 minutes. There is something informative about that. But in the general pop, there's actually two schools of thought here, right? I've heard both of these. Number one is that you actually want a really quick increase and a quick decrease, right? So that you come back to range quite fast and that the area under the curve will actually be very similar to someone who has this slow and gradual increase, stays up for a little bit, slowly comes down. When you compare area under the curve, they're actually quite similar, right? Mm -hmm. So let's say you have a higher spike in one case, but it comes down quickly compared to a mm -hmm. less elevated glucose excursion, but it's up a little bit longer and it takes longer to I come imagine back. some people though would say the latter example would be better for suppressing your appetite. I don't know if that's true within the normal range. Mm. I think both of those with matched area under the curve within the normal physiological range, assuming they don't both go into hypoglycemic mm. territory, I would argue that there's not a huge difference. That's something there. else for us to check. More homework. Mm -hmm. I like it. Let's, we'll find something uh, to, to help yeah. us with that. 
I think I mentioned last episode, but for me, the use of these in folks without diabetes or pre-diabetes, I just want to see a study where you put these CGMs on folks' arms and you objectively document the quality of their diet. Yeah. If diet quality is improving in a way that we know is associated with better long-term health, I'll wear a CGM myself. Yeah. Mate, you <laughs> I'll put one on. on both arms and both <laughs> legs. <laughs> Mate, you're spot on. I think that, that that I don't know if we'll see that study, but that is No, we have to see that. That's, that's a basic thinking. study. No, that's, that's a basic study. Yeah. That, I mean, what you've just thought about there is going beyond Well, it's not reductionist. No. It's just, let's zoom out. Yes. We give these gadgets to folks. What happens to their food choices? Are they better or are they worse? Yeah. And we look at other outcomes as well. Yeah. I mean, that that could be a cool study. Maybe we can pull some strings, Mm -hmm. man. So, you had another study you wanted to share on insulin correction. Yeah. So, so my study of the week that I brought in is… I came across this study uh, in preparation for a talk that I'm giving in the next few weeks for a CGM company. Where's that talk? It's CGM online. Company. It's online. It's a virtual talk. Hashtag it's sponsored a, by CGM. It's not CGM. sponsored, but it is. Um, are they going to be? Are they going to be uh, happy about this episode? Watch spilling the beans too early. Oh, this is for type one diabetics. Okay. Right. So I, I, I'd assume that okay. they'd be pretty happy to hear this kind sure. of stuff. Um, but even if they're not too bad, this is my opinion. I wonder if they're branching out to folks without diabetes because part of me thinks that a lot of this is also a market expansion it's an opportunity to make a lot more money yeah i was thinking about that from the perspective of of these manufacturers of these products the fact that they're becoming so commercial across the population is actually really good for their bottom line like they're they're Mm. loving this essentially for them i'm not saying that they want more people with diabetes but if their product is being purchased by people with diabetes and now the general pop are purchasing them i mean it's it's kind of very profitable now. I'm going to throw a question at you on that. Yeah. So there's probably two ways of looking at this. And I got this from a blog you sent me. Mm -hmm. We can probably link to that. That was a great, great read. Um, But some might be thinking, well, okay, that's a great thing for people with diabetes because if more people are buying these, it'll bring the price down. But then I'm sure others are thinking, no, they'll sell more, but they're not going to drop the price. Right. I don't know if I can actually comment on that from like I haven't thought about it deep enough, but I understand what you're saying here. I yeah, do understand. Check your that. contract. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't want to breach my contract. No, but um, I understand that, like the economics of it. That mm. does make sense. I think where people are getting kind of pissed off is people with type one who are struggling to pay their four thousand dollars a year for the CGM. Sure. It's a life saving device, and you get these guys who are just using them throwing away 4,000K a year who don't have diabetes and all they're getting is perfect numbers. Is that how much people are paying? It's about four grand a year. If, to, you, if, if you don't have diabetes to get a CGM. Yeah, it's the same as what I would pay. $4,000. Yeah, for a year. That's wearing it okay, every day I'm not going to put one on both no, arms no, no, and both legs. <laughs> if you only wear it for 10 days or two weeks, it'll be a few hundred dollars. Oh, gotcha. Right, so yeah. if you wear it every day for a year. Right, yeah, but if I do both legs, both arms, both arms you're paying $16,000. So don't do that. That's not intelligent. Um, so what, what people with diabetes have noticed is like, we are wearing these CGMs that literally save our life, right? And we're forking out the money every year to keep us alive to some degree. Mm-hmm. And then you have a keto biohacker who also wears a CGM all year round. It doesn't save their life. It's just a fashion mm-hmm. accessory that sort of 
But is that really a problem if they want to spend their money on that as long as it's not affecting the supply to people living with diabetes? It's not a problem. It's not really it's a problem. It's not a problem. But wouldn't it be great though if it did open to, to more people, we did find out it improved diet quality and then it drove the price down? Yeah. And if that was the case, I would be supporting them and <laughs> everyone using them. Look, at the moment, I'm not offended if people want to – like I'm not offended. We're having a laugh and we're, we're sort mm. of being – you know. We're taking the piss a little bit, but like, I actually don't mind if you wear it. I just think don't then take your numbers and give advice to other people about the importance of these numbers. If you don't even understand what they mean or, mm -hmm. or how they correlate. I think that's sort of one of the takeaways there. Um, so, so back to this study is I brought in this study this week, which like I said, I've, I'm including in my talk, but this is really interesting. And this also circles back to my workout this morning, I was explaining how I went to climb the rope, right? I'll tell you that the title of this study is Optimal Insulin Correction Factor in Post-High-Intensity Exercise Hyperglycemia in Adults with Type 1 Diabetes. Mm, can you translate that? Yeah. So in English, what that means is when people with type 1 diabetes perform high-intensity interval training, 90 plus percent of the time they see their blood glucose elevate towards hyperglycemia mm. into the hyperglycemic or high blood glucose range. Which of course then scares people from doing yeah, such exercise. Yeah, because now you're out of range. So your timing range is now higher and you know it might affect your A1C long term and it doesn't feel good being in a hyperglycemic state and how do we get it back down in the normal? There's so many questions that, that What does raises. that feel like when you are in that state? Just so if someone's listening who is not living with diabetes... Can you explain it to them? Yeah. I mean, in a nutshell, it feels terrible, absolutely terrible. You basically feel like you have sand in your muscles or like sand mm -hmm. in the gears, right? So the system feels heavy and sluggish and you can get sort of reflux, like a burning sensation, um, lethargic, exhausted, like your eyelids mm -hmm. are heavy. You can have fuzzy sort of like vision where, where literally the glucose in your eyes impacts how your, your nerves are working and you can see spotty, fuzzy vision. It doesn't feel good. So, And you don't perform well either. Explain from a physiological point of view, why do most folks living with diabetes when they do HIIT training experience these states of hyperglycemia? So when you start doing an anaerobic form of exercise or, or where your heart rate is above, in the literature, they, they sort of vary it between above 80% of your maximum heart rate or even above 85% of your maximum heart rate. That form of training is what's called glycolytic. In other words, it requires glucose as the predominant fuel, fuel source, right? So let's say you jump on a rowing machine and you – well, I'll, I'll, why don't I explain this protocol actually that they use because I thought this was a really interesting protocol because mm -hmm. this actually is a real-world protocol. This A lot of the times in exercise physiology and sports science, you see – you know, you see lab tests that, you know, may not indicate what people would actually do in their training, like a VO2 test. How many people are doing a VO2 max test in their day-to-day? -day? You, don't, you don't do that kind of training, right? Which is an incremental increase in intensity for like seven, eight, nine minutes until you quit. That's okay. a VO2 test, right? For this one, this was a 25-minute hit session. Right? And the Sub purpose of this study was to establish what can be done to help people return to a healthy blood glucose exactly. level following a session of HIIT training. Exactly. So, and, and why, 
why is a study like this even important is because in general, most forms of exercise that aren't high intensity cause people's blood glucose to drop very rapidly. And what that does is it creates this element of fear and anxiety around exercise whereby people with type 1 diabetes actually exercise less than the majority of the population. Out of fear. Out of fear. There's an extra barrier to to entry, right? Mm -hmm. So this study is looking at a couple of things. It's saying, well, if you're scared of exercising due to going low, high-intensity interval training not only isn't going to make you go low in 90 plus percent of cases, and in another study I saw it was even like 98% of cases, but it will actually make your blood glucose increase. So you don't have anything to worry about. Don't fear going low. You can enjoy the, the benefits of exercise. You can get the great cardiovascular benefits of HIIT training and the aerobic, because you do get, even though it's anaerobic by nature, you do get anaerobic benefits post-workout in the recovery, and if, especially if you, you follow a program for weeks and months. So it's basically saying, look, we might have another option here for people with type 1 to exercise. However, when you are in a hyperglycemic state post-exercise, how do we get you down safely, right? Because you, mm. most people understand that when you exercise, you become more insulin sensitive. So you might have to reduce your insulin dose. That's after sort of moderate or low intensity, steady state training and moderate te- intensity training and gym training, that kind of stuff. But this is like a different world. And what they showed here is that when people did a 25-minute hit session four times per week, and the way the workout was structured was, was pretty good. So they did a five-minute bout of 30 on, 30 off, mm-hmm. right? When you're in the on phase, you're above 80% of your heart rate max. And when you're on the off or the kind of active rest phase, you're at around 50%. All right? What could you know what kind of exercise? It, is it like a salt bike? And yeah, this rowing? one was cycling. I, it wasn't a salt bike. They used sort of like cycle ergometers okay. uh, in the gym. So the first round of five minutes, you do 30 on, 30 off on the bike. You then rest for five minutes. For the next five minutes, you do 30 on 30 off, but it's a circuit of six bodyweight exercises, mm-hmm. sort of like a CrossFit style workout. Burpees, box jumps, you know, those kinds mm-hmm. of, of movements that Would get F45 your heart rate. also qualify? Correct. Like typical this? circuit training with sort of light loads, mm-hmm. higher reps, keep your heart rate above 80% while you're on. So do 30 on 30 on for another five minutes doing exercises like we just mentioned. Another five-minute rest, and then the last bout, they went back to the bike, and they completed the same one that they did in the first bout of exercise. So it's three bouts of five minutes with five minutes in between. So 30-minute total. Yeah, so it was a 25 minutes total. 25 minutes total. Yeah. Then, at the end of the the workout, they look at people's blood glucose, and they saw that in 90% of cases, everyone was above what they determined to be the hyperglycemic state, Mm -hmm. which was eight millimoles, Okay. If you were above an eight millimole, what they wanted to see was how can you give an insulin dose that will correct you back into the normal range? For them, the number that they wanted to get people back down to was six, right? That seems a little higher than the normal range, but that's a, it was a very safe number to pick for this. You don't want to try to get them down to a four because if you over-administer insulin and you go to a three or a two, you're in big trouble. Mm-hmm. So they picked a six as it was safe and it's considered the normal range. The way they figured out the dosing was, was what, what I found really interesting. So there's something called the rule of 100. For people without diabetes, it's going to sound like Spanish, but basically you take your total daily dose of insulin, which in my case, because I'm using multiple daily injections, I'm not on a pump. I have a basal insulin that I give at night, which is like my 24-hour background insulin. So I give that injection at like say 6 p.m. 
I take at the moment, I'm on about nine or 10 units. And then you plus that number with the daily insulin you take, which is called your bolus insulin, which is the insulin you have with your meals, right? So for me, let's just say my total daily is approximately 20 uh, units or 25 units of insulin, somewhere in that range. It'll vary day to day. You do 100 divided by that number. That gives you what's called insulin correction factor, right? That's the amount of insulin that you can give to drop your blood glucose by a certain amount. So then what they do is they, they figure out the dose of insulin that each, participant, or each subject's gonna take is the blood glucose that they're currently at because everyone's different after a workout, right? So mm -hmm. you might, let's say you have to type one, you might get your blood glucose up to 13 from a HIIT workout. I might go to a nine mm -hmm. or whatever, right? So you would do, let's say you were a 13, you'd go 13 minus six because you want to get down to a six. So you've got seven millimoles. That's, that's the number you want to reduce by. That's the gap. Mm -hmm. You would then divide that by the insulin correction factor, which is the rule of 100 I just mentioned. And that'll give you a number. Now, what they did was they said to the, the uh, subject, they split them into four groups. They go, we're going to look at one group that does this HIIT workout. And at the end of the workout, they do nothing with their insulin. They give no insulin. Let's see what happens. Do they keep going up? Do they flatten? Do they... What it showed was not only did they rise above the normal range into the hyperglycemic state, but it actually continued to rise. And the net change over the, the, over the next three hours was another millimole up. Mm. Okay. So there was no real risk of this like delayed drop from HIIT training, which is a really cool finding, which gives you confidence that if you do do HIIT training, you don't have to freak out that you're going to have a massive drop later. I mean, some people do, everyone's different, but for the most part, you're going to stay elevated. The other three groups, you either gave 50% of your, your dose that we just calculated, 100% of the dose, or 150% of the dose. That number's kind of scary because you've, you've figured out your insulin correction factor that should get you back to normal. And now we're saying, all right, take 1.5 times that, right? So it kind of gives people a bit of a hesitation here, right? They then measured over the next three hours and up to, I think it was 24 hours, what happens to their blood glucose. And I mean, the results were unbelievable. The, the group that had the best control and uh, ended up in the normal range was the group that took 150% of their correction mm -hmm. factor. So what this tells you is that HIIT training can actually make, not only make your blood glucose go up, but it actually makes you require more insulin, right? And this goes back to non-diabetics wearing CGM. So you know, you know the insulin carbohydrate model of obesity. Mm -hmm. So the same, the same idea that people take with glucose control, they apply to insulin. They say, the lower the better. Keep your insulin as low as possible, right? Well, by that standard, you shouldn't do HIIT training if you care about keeping your insulin as low as possible. Because even in healthy subjects, I found another study looking at HIIT training, their insulin response was bigger mm -hmm. after HIIT. To respond to that increase in blood glucose. Right. And why does the blood glucose increase? Which I didn't even answer your question two hours ago, mm -hmm. it feels like now. Um, I was going to bring it, you back. Okay, I'm back, I'm back. The reason your blood glucose increases is because the liver is responsible for providing glucose for the body during states of anaerobic or glycolytic exercise, meaning glucose is the predominant fuel source. It's mm -hmm. not a fat burning zone that you're in here, right? This is glucose centric. So the liver provides the glucose. The rate of glucose appearing in the blood exceeds the rate of mm. disappearance into the muscle. Which all comes back to where your heart rate is. Correct. That's why they always use heart rate as sort of the proxy. That's the mm -hmm. main measure for whether or not 
you are going to have a lower blood glucose response to a meal, uh, a meal <laughs> exercise or a high blood glucose mm. response to an exercise or whether you'll be stable, right? Mm. Some people are stable. That seems like useful information for someone with type 1 who's about to do exercise to understand, well, where's my heart rate going to go in this session? Yes. Here's the limitation though that I've sort of noticed with this paper. The subjects here did their exercise in the fasted state in the morning with no insulin on board. No I, rapid, I was going no to rapid. ask you about, so this whole strategy is about after the exercise, Correct. give insulin. That's right. But what would happen if you had a pre-training protocol with administering insulin or some other form of potentially exercise or a warm-up prior to hit? Yes. Okay. So let's go through a couple of those. So yes, this is like a retrospective look back on, okay, we've come up to this level, let's get back down. I'd love to see a study looking at like a preventative strategy or a prospective sort of outlook where, here's the trouble though with this. You have, it's very hard to predict what your blood glucose is going to do during a HIIT workout. We don't, we, it's impossible actually to say, I know that if I start and my blood glucose is six, at the end of the workout, I'm going to be 13. It's impossible to know. And if you do take that guess, and you give that insulin correction factor up front, what if you're wrong? What if you weren't going to go to a 13, you only went to a 10? When you say it's impossible, just for people listening, let's say I go and do HIT frequently, three times a week, I have type 1, and I'm able to see where my blood glucose goes during all those sessions, do I then start to understand how HIT affects me? Or is what you're saying is that it's impossible because where your blood glucose goes in, during that session is not just determined by the HIIT training, but also what did you eat prior? How was your sleep? All of that. Mate, you nailed it. You're basically a diabetes educator. Congratulations. That's it what happens after three episodes with you on this. <laughs> nailed that. Mate, that was exactly, you're exactly right. So yes, you should look for trends and patterns. So what you would do is, this is what I would say as an exercise physiologist or giving diabetes education. Detect some trends and patterns over weeks and months. As the more data, the better here. So if you have type 1, Go do that HIIT workout in the fasted state. Keep as many variables as possible that are constant. Fasted state, no rapid insulin. Do that HIIT workout. What did you start at? What did you end at? Average it off. Let's say on average, you do go from 6 to a 13. All right? Problem is now, did you sleep well the night before? Have you had caffeine in the morning? Was it a black coffee? Are Was it stressed? a coffee with milk? Are you stressed? Did your insulin dose even go into the, the part of the body that, that absorbs it the same as another part of the body? There's so much to take in here, which is why it's risky. Which is, mm -hmm. I think that's why these studies aren't there yet, the preventative strategy, the mm -hmm. sort of upfront insulin. So what I would say though is, and I can tell you what I did today for my rope session, because when I climb rope, if I don't give insulin beforehand – Mate, I'm seeing a spike. And when I say spike, I mean spike. I'm so saying, the, you, the rope is is a form of HIIT training. It, it's interesting. You, you can't categorize it as the same HIIT as this, but the intensity and the adrenaline of being 10 meters above the ground mm -hmm. hanging from a rope and the all out, it's, it's, it's a maximal effort. It's essentially like a sprint set just using your arms. So you're climbing as fast as you can to the top it's very anaerobic. You can hold your breath the whole time, right? Your body's got enough ATP to get you to the top and back down, maybe even twice. But as soon as you let go of that rope, you're, you're gassed, right? So you've got this like oxygen debt that happens after you've done this session, right? But the response of the liver is really similar, for me anyway, for a rope climb as it would be for a HIIT workout, or even some people find this with strength training. So I've got a friend, Jessica, in, in Canada, who's like the 
greatest female powerlifter in the world at the moment. She has she also sees huge spikes on competition day when she's doing powerlifting, right? So it's not just jumping on a bike and sprinting. Like this can happen from very high intensity strength training or, or any other forms of, of exercise, right? So obviously I, I did my rope session today and I was thinking about this study and I was thinking, what is the safest way for me to do my little N, N of one study? Do I want to give 150% of the instant correction factor up front? No, that's risky as hell, right? I don't want to do that. But I want some insulin on board. So I thought I'll go really, really conservative and I'll give half of my correction factor. Because again, like you just astutely pointed out, I do see a very consistent pattern of my blood glucose elevates when I do the rope and it's always about a six to eight millimole elevation, which is quite significant, mm -hmm. right? Especially if you start at a six, man, I could go up to a 14. I'll give half of the instant correction factor up front and I've got a CGM on. So if I do go low, I know that I'll be able to track it. I've got glucose nearby. So if I'm going low, I'll just straight away eat glucose and flatten it out. But today was amazing because I took, I took 1.5 units of insulin. There was another variable though that I th threw in there and I had a black coffee as well before the rope, which I know spikes me as well. So it felt to me like a safe dose, 1.5 units, small amount of insulin. And I flatlined the whole workout, did not move at all. Mm. So I was really happy with the response, my glucose response to the workout. I took a bit of a guess with the insulin dose and it worked really well. And I've been doing this for now for, for a long time. I've had mm. diabetes for so long. So I encourage people with diabetes to, you know, be willing to take this experiment to the sort of like, as you mentioned, that prospective way of doing it, where you can sort of find a trend and pattern and very safely and conservatively mm. put some insulin on board so that you can have a workout where you don't spike and you perform better when you're in the normal range and you feel better. Mm. So it's a solution. What What would you say the the main take-home point of this study would be for someone with type 1 diabetes? There, there are a couple of good takeaways here. Number one is that if you're somebody who does go low very often from exercise, this is a great option. You, you're very unlikely you're going to go low. You can do high-intensity training, provided it really is high-intensity. Mm. Here's, here's, here's Heart rate, caveat. 80%. Yes. Make sure you're doing this properly because – if you do this, but you think you think you're doing high intensity, but you're actually in the moderate intensity aerobic, mm -hmm. maybe even zone two, you, you got to know how hard this is meant to be. This stuff hurts. Mm. Well, okay. there you go. That's where a little gadget can be helpful. Yeah, one of these gadgets. Yep, that's true. Check your heart rate. That's absolutely true. So check your heart rate. Figure out what your eighty percent of your max is, or your heart rate reserve. However you choose to do it. Know that you can do this kind of exercise and not worry about going low. So then you get the benefits of exercise without saying, you know what, I've got type one, it's too dangerous, I'm never gonna exercise mm -hmm. again, all right? So this is great. Another thing you can do is, you can actually use HIIT training, or not even HIIT training, I'd call it sprint training, because the, the study I found was called sprint interval training, SIT, S-I-T. You can use a very small sprint before and after a bout of low intensity or moderate intensity uh, steady state cardio. To correct. Yeah, to Bring prevent the hypo. So you mm. start with a hard sprint set. In the study I found it was only a 10 second sprint, but maybe you want to do a 20 or whatever. Mm. All out efforts. That's a great point. Like imagine you were experiencing hypo, right? But you couldn't access any food. Would you go for a sprint? Yeah, if that's, if that's all you've got. Absolutely. If that's all you've got, I know people who have done this. So another point just on this topic is that a lot of people with type one, what, what you do is you, you, you stock up on glucose before your exercise. Let's say you're about to do a low intensity or moderate intensity run or cycle or whatever. Most people know they're going to go low. 
right? So you either adjust your insulin beforehand, you take a smaller dose at breakfast mm -hmm. or lunch or whenever it is, and or you eat glucose so that you give yourself some buffer, buffer space to drop. People don't want to eat when they're not hungry. People don't want to just put calories in because they think they're going to gain weight. Mm -hmm. So they just, go, they just say, well, you know what? I'm just not going to exercise because I don't want to eat a whole bunch of glucose before my run. It just defeats the purpose of going to burn those calories, which that's not my opinion, just to be clear. There's way more to exercise than burning calories. Um, but this is another option. So instead of eating the banana, maybe you could try a really hard sprint before your moderate intensity training. That way you don't have to put mm -hmm. calories on. Your liver will present them for you. Do your workout. You'll probably trend low during the workout and then finish with a sprint so you can bring it back up without having to mm -hmm. eat jelly beans it's a good or tool. Sort of stuff. So there's a lot to come out of this study. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm, I'm really excited to actually present this when the, when the talk happens in the next few weeks. Very good. As long as you've still got that contract. <laughs> I'm not under contract yet. I haven't signed any. <laughs> Should I tell you about this sleep study? Please do. I just hogged the mic. Sorry about that. No, that was, that was great. I think that was really instructive. Okay. So new paper just came out, published, looking at how does sleep or sleep deprivation, I should say, affect energy intake, energy expenditure, and also adiposity weight gain. So really interesting study. Essentially, trying to ask the question, if you are sleep deprived, will you consume more calories? Will you expend less energy? Will you gain weight? Where will that weight be? And this study uh, was set up in a way to answer all of this. And, and the hypothesis was that as you deprive someone of sleep, they will consume more calories. There's a bunch of research that's looked at that. This was an interesting trial for a few reasons. It was published in the Journal of American College of Cardiology uh, maybe one or two weeks ago, so it's brand new. And it was a randomized crossover trial. So it had two phases and crossover, meaning that every participant got to experience both phases. Mm -hmm. So there was a sleep deprivation phase. And I should say these were healthy adults age 19 to about 40. They were non-obese. Two phases. One was the sleep deprivation phase. The participants were sleeping four hours a night. And this is in a, a sort of inpatient setting, like a metabolic kind of ward where- Very controlled. Very controlled, right? You can see they're measuring uh, energy expenditure, exactly how long people are sleeping and all the food they're eating. Mm -hmm. So sleep deprivation, deprivation phase, four hours of sleep a night. That's a two-week phase. And then there was the other control phase Oof. where they slept nine hours a night. Two weeks of four hours a night. That sounds unethical, mate. Yeah, that's oh, tough, that'd be right? tough, yeah. Mm. One hour of four, one sleep of four hours. I'm yeah, dead. so uh, obviously these these folks that, that signed, uh, up, signed up got remunerated. I hope they did, <laughs> hope they did. handsomely. Um, but so really interesting design. And I should say there's three months washout between the two phases. Mm. So people did the two phases in random order. Some people did the four-hour first and then the nine-hour sleep. Others did it the other way, vice versa. But either way, they had a three-month washout period, a space, a gap between mm -hmm. the two phases just to allow people to get back to baseline. Yeah. So what they found was super interesting. 
And I think there are some instructive kind of takeaway points here for us. Firstly, when folks were sleeping four hours a night, on average, they consumed 308 more calories per day. And there, Significant. Yeah, and there is a few kind of hypotheses that may explain this. But again, the authors of this paper, they, and they, they kind of speculate a little bit, but they say that this is far from fully understood. Do they specify, were the calories from like larger portions or were they seeking out unhealthier foods? Interestingly, they, what they found specific to food was that that 308 calories was mostly from fat and protein. Interesting. And it was an ad, lib, ad libitum study. So people could essentially eat whatever they wanted, as much food as they wanted. And Do you have a theory on why they seeked out yeah, fat and protein? Well, maybe. Something just came to mind for me. But Tell I'm, me. I'm, well, I'm thinking... So one of the most important parts of sleeping is to repair, cellular repair mm -hmm. and regenerate cells, right? And like heal, and the body recovers. If you're not recovering, maybe you're seeking out amino acids or proteins to try repair mm -hmm. damaged cells. And mm -hmm. that's why they go for protein-rich food, which happens to also be packaged with fat. And they end up eating more of that kind of food. Totally just yeah, a well, I mean, theory that, 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 I that does fit with uh, Professor Stephen Simpson. I had him on the show um, and David Robenheimer, and they wrote a book called Eat Like the Animals, and their research was able to show a consistent, consistently across many different animals that protein, we have the strongest appetite for protein of all nutrients. Mm, interesting. Um, yeah, which is fascinating. The researchers here kind of hypothesize that there could be a few explanations. It could be changes in uh, various hormones, that are appetite suppressing or uh, enhancing. Although in this study, they didn't see that, but other studies have. So it's an open question. It could be heightened uh, reward um, systems. So parts of the, the brain that are associated with reward, more activation. Mm -hmm. So you have this uh, enhanced kind of um, reward activation with unhealthy foods, very fatty foods. Right. So you get that dopamine hit. Yes. Find more food. Right. Yeah. So that's that's kind of uh, one of the the theories. And then there is another theory that, you know, people are just awake for more hours and therefore can consume more food. Right. Um, so there's a few different kind of uh, reasons for why people who are sleep de deprived consumed more calories. Now, what's really interesting is that during that two-week period, compared to the the compared to when folks were sleeping nine hours, they the sleep-deprived group gained about half a kilogram. Mm -hmm. But then they did a DEXA scan, and it actually wasn't a difference in fat. Both groups actually gained a similar amount of fat. This is where it's really, really interesting. The sleep-deprived group preferentially developed visceral fat, mm -hmm. fat around their organs. And we know that that visceral fat is associated with elevated lipids, triglycerides, insulin resistance, type 2 diabetes, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, cardiovascular disease. Uh, you know, most physicians will say it's, it's better to, to hold on to a bit of fat around your hips and your butt than it is around your abdomen yeah. for that reason. Yeah. So I think this study, and again, it just builds on many other studies out there, it highlights the importance if you are trying to manage your body weight 
or perhaps you want to lose weight, that's a goal of yours, to not just think about the food that you're eating, but to also think about your sleep routine. Yeah. Because if you're sleep deprived, if you're not focusing on that, you might be making it harder for yourself to consume maintenance calories or consume less calories than you need if you're trying to lose some weight. And you know what's crazy? This was just in two weeks. Right. Two weeks to have a significant, you know, visceral fat change. Imagine poor habits over a mm. lifetime. You can see why people get chronic illnesses over, over years and decades. Like this is a two-week yeah. trial. Yeah, I think 15% of, of the population has type 2 diabetes, 25% non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. You know, these are diseases that are affecting a lot of people. Yeah. Um, so it's a reminder that our health is – there are, it's very multifactorial. Absolutely. Nutrition's important, but here we see that sleep is very important. What about the nine-hour group? What did they find? So this was all relative to that. Oh, okay. So, so yeah. the differences that I explained are relative to the nine-hour gotcha. nine hour group. Right. Um, so I think some kind of tips here for folks that are thinking about their sleep and want to improve it and high-level stuff, but I do plan to explore it more, is you know dimming the lights before bed. Getting the room nice and cold. Yeah. Doing something, and I think this is a really important one, doing something that helps you feel relaxed and not agitated. So, so for example, maybe having a sauna or reading a book that you like or even watching a movie. I know people say, you know, screens are bad, but I think it's what you're doing on the screen that's really important. I agree. I think if you're watching something that gets you into a good mood, yeah. versus using a screen and going on Twitter and getting agitated. Yeah, like don't look at a Stephen Lynn post before you go to bed <laughs> because you're not going to sleep. Right. right. <laughs> so I think, you know, just do something that makes you feel relaxed in those yeah. hours going to to, uh, to sleep before bed. Yeah. And then also with regards to food, trying to stop eating a few hours before bed. Yeah, I would, I would uh, add probably one or two things to that. So one would be... You could use blue blockers if you want. So it could be mm-hmm. a screen on, on, on your screen or goggles. It's super dorky, but it, they work. Um, you can turn the brightness down on your phone as well and you can change the type of light. to settings and stuff. Another one which is interesting is the cooling effect mm. of when you go to sleep, as your core temperature drops, you actually helps you fall asleep. So some people recommend having a warm shower or a bath mm. to get that body temperature up a little bit. And then when you get into bed, don't cover the blanket, cover yourself, leave your feet and hands out Mm. so that they can cool. And as the heat radiates out of those parts of your body, it can help you fall asleep. That's that's a good point. That's why I put sauna in there as opposed to ice bath, which probably isn't the best for most people before bed. Yeah, no, that's good. I think those are good tips. I think I do a lot of those and Mm. they certainly have helped me. So that's good. And then one other is, is in the morning, setting your circadian rhythm by when you get up, try and get outside. And I know your dad speaks about this as well uh, with his work, but try and look out to the horizon. Yeah. Look you know, far away, get that natural light exposure. You don't need to look directly into the sun, yeah. but just getting out and getting that natural light exposure will help set your circadian rhythms, yeah. which will then be very important for later on in the day when the sun's going down to help your body get into a kind of hormonal state that allows you to fall asleep. And when you get that early sunlight, I believe that through sunglasses does not have the same effect. You mm. actually want that natural light 
filtering in. Of, of course, you're not going to stare at the sun, but mm. having natural light hitting the retina you know, not filtered through a sunglasses lens is probably important too. You mentioned Stephen Lynn. <laughs> He's not back for the silly post of the week again, is he? <laughs> you brought him into this. I brought someone else. <laughs> this is turned into the Stephen Lynn podcast. This yes. is unbelievable. I, I, look, you've got to start this one. Mm. This is your turn. I know what you brought okay. in. Well, Stephen Lynn... He actually don't have the post here. I'll pop it up on the YouTube so it pops up. Yeah, Jamie, pull that up. Yeah, <laughs> you need a Jamie. How good is that? I've got, we've got Cameron here. No, so. but like an in-house Jamie. There's a yeah. screen. That'd be cool. Jamie, if you're looking for a uh, career change, if you wanna <laughs> some people have no idea what we're shows. talking about. Jamie's uh, Joe Rogan's. Um, yeah. What do you call him? Producer yeah. who, who brings up. I might poach him. Yeah. That that pull, pull that up, Jamie, has just become yeah. a, a, a phrase that everyone uses. So. We'll headhunt him. Okay. Uh, so Stephen Lynn, um, he's he's back. And again, I'd love to have Stephen on the show. The uh, offer is always there. He did a post that just I found mind-boggling. And it was on the Mediterranean diet. And he was essentially saying that Mediterranean regions eat a lot of meat and that a Mediterranean diet is a hoax and that you know you can't believe – people that say a Mediterranean diet is associated with lower risk of cardiovascular disease, um, you know, chronic illness is better health essentially. And I'll, I'll share that post so you can see his exact words. But what he is overlooking is that in nutrition science, by and large in, in the majority of, of studies that exist on the Mediterranean diet, the Mediterranean diet in nutrition science is defined there is a clear definition for it. And in fact, there is a score, a Mediterranean score that is used in studies. And so this- Sorry, can I interject one sec? My understanding of his post was not saying the Mediterranean diet is not healthy. Mm -hmm. He's saying the health benefits that Mediterranean diet that you see on it is actually not due to the foods you think it's due to. It's due to all these other foods mm -hmm. that he mentioned. So I don't think he says it's not a healthy diet. He's just saying that the way we categorized it is bullshit and that it's actually the mm -hmm. way he's decided to yeah. categorize it. Is that is that how you saw it as well? Yes, but the problem lies with how we define the diet and score it within the literature and what we yeah. see, right? So, so there is a, a clear Mediterranean diet scoring tool which essentially gives more points to diets that contain olive oil, fresh fruit, vegetables, fatty fish and seafood, legumes, uh, tree nuts and peanuts. And will, again, give you a, a higher score if you're limiting uh, foods like wine or baked goods or butter or red or processed meats. Okay? So, in fact, in, this, in, the, in the literature you get a better score if you limit red meat on this, right. okay? Now, so when you look at that and you look at populations, populations who score higher according to that criteria are healthier. Mm. They are people that are limiting red meat, okay? So his, his approach here is just a complete misunderstanding with regards to how the Mediterranean diet is, is characterized in epidemiology, and how it's defined and this scoring tool. And, you know, one only has to look at the Leon Diet Heart Study, which is one of the most famous randomized controlled trials that exists. And the intervention group in that study, this was a secondary prevention study. So folks that already had cardiovascular disease, the intervention group adopt a Mediterranean diet that is 
rich in fruits and vegetables and fatty fish and legumes um, and and has limited uh, inclusion of foods like red meat and butter. Mm-hmm. It's much more rich in unsaturated fats and low in saturated fat, and they have a 70% reduction in cardiovascular disease. Yeah. So this idea that the Mediterranean diet being a very plant-forward diet that hasn't been it, you know, shown as a healthy eating pattern by evidence is just crazy. And so yeah, doctors, to call it a hoax is just, it's so, it's the, it's literally the opposite of what, what the diet he, that he, did he use the word hoax? I think he did. He, I think he did. But he, so his recommendations were they eat a lot of pork. Mm-hmm. I think it was basically a red meat heavy, very high saturated fat diet. Essentially, essentially what a carnivore diet looks like nowadays, like mm-hmm. the, the kind of trendy carnivore diet. So he was saying that. Everything you know about Mediterranean diet and the literature associated with the great health outcomes is not because of the thorough scoring system, point system that you just mentioned. It's actually due to the pork that they eat. And here's the thing though. (laughs) Those people are captured in these studies and the people that are eating lots of pork and lots of red meat, they score lower on the Mediterranean score. And we see that those people have worse health outcomes. Right. (laughs) So it's not as though the research is is not – is not – essentially looking at these people who do in Mediterranean regions uh, who do consume more animal foods, they are included in these studies. Exactly. They just score lower on the Mediterranean exactly. diet score and they do worse. Yeah, that's bizarre. Again, it's one of those people who are trying to be a leader, go against the grain. They know something that the consensus doesn't know. Listen to me, buy my product, which brings mm-hmm. me on to my silly post of the week, which is essentially – this theme is just so well aligned with these guys, these, these quacky guys who just put utter garbage into uh, our social media feeds. So <laughs> my post of the week. Utter garbage. Utter garbage. Asprey, Dave Asprey, Mr. Bulletproof Coffee. He's come up twice in this conversation. I know. I'm so sorry to do this to everyone. But this post was, this was fantastic. This is something that, again, this segment's meant to be hard to find the silly post, but it's just too easy at the moment because mm. – People are tagging us and things and we get – anyway, this one landed in in, uh, in my inbox. So this I, – I wish I could play it because you have to hear him talking about what it is. For years, I've been talking about how kale is bad for you. But people say, but Dave, vitamin K. Well, there's a new product that's pretty cool. It's called Kale Buster. And Kale Buster is from Vitelli Life. And what it does is it has K2 in it, not the weak K1 that kale has. Kale's full of oxalic acid. It pokes little holes in your gut and it's tied to painful sex and joint pain and kidney stones. So why would you do that? What I like to do is take Kale Buster instead. It even has grass-fed beef liver in it, which is way better for you than kale, as well as more K2 than you'll ever get from that nasty, bitter, green evilness. Kale Buster is what it's called and it works. Go to Vitalia.com. To learn how you can get a free bottle of Kale Buster and you can save 10%. That's V-A-T-E-L-L-I-A.com. Use code Dave10. But essentially, I'll summarize it. Dave Asprey puts up a post. From memory, the front said, stop eating kale, take this supplement instead. Huge red flag. When you see that, when, when someone tells you to stop doing something that you probably know to be healthy and to buy my supplement instead, Red flag. I would immediately either scroll scroll on or when you do listen, take it with a huge Sounds like lectins and the anti-lectin shield yeah. supplement. Yeah, you see it everywhere. Exactly. From Dr. Gundry. Exactly. It's create a problem and then sell the solution. Yeah, invent a problem. That's right. Yeah, exactly. 
<laughs> a post about this new supplement called the Kale Buster. All right, which <laughs> essentially he says it's not called the Kale Buster. No, surely. it says that on the package. Kale Buster on the package. I swear to you. So his position is, and these are his words. I quote. I think this is a joke. It's not a joke. I think he's having a stitch up here. Maybe he's trolling all of us. I think but so. But I bet you some poor ignorant people bought this product. I, I guarantee it. His words are, kale is trying to kill you. It's poking holes. No, this is no. a joke. We have to stop. <laughs> it's poking holes in your gut and it's linked to painful sex. Kale is linked to pa- <laughs> Poor kale. What did, he, what did he have to do with any of this? Where is the evidence for that? Mate, where was the study where they tested people's genitals after sex who'd been eating kale? I mean, it's just, it's so bizarre to even use those two things in the same sentence. Anyway, he's selling a kale buster, which is essentially... This is taking us to an all-time low. <laughs> I think it's going lower and lower each week. We'll see what happens next week. But So this, this supplement contains... One of the K vitamins, you know a lot more about this than I do. Maybe you should actually explain this part because I, I don't want to butcher it. <laughs> well, I can't really recall this post in detail. I know that I got tagged into it as well. Yeah. Uh, I think the interesting thing that he was putting forward, so two things, this supplement, it's a K2 supplement, K2 right? supplement. Okay. So K2 is a, considered a non-essential. Yeah. Um, non-essential vitamin. Vitamin, yeah. right? Because your body makes it, your microbiome will manufacture K2. Okay. And- so it's not something that is recommended for, you know, the population at large. Yeah. There are small subsets of the population. For example, postmenopausal women with low bone density, there is some evidence to suggest they might benefit from including K2 as a, a direct source of K2. Uh, but again, I can't remember all of his points in his post, but he was talking about how animal foods contain K2 and plant foods don't. Or not many plant foods do. Because what, what's the form in kale? K1, is that right? Yeah, that's right, K1. Okay. So he's setting this up as, you know, kale doesn't even contain K2 and here's a, a K2 supplement and you can take this and not worry about- All the things about kale that's trying to kill you, yeah, like the you, oxalates and so the anti-nutrients. So take this and you can sleep at night because kale's not trying to kill you. Kale's not <laughs> trying to murder you, okay? And- So he sets it up, he frames it as, you know, this is a superior type of vitamin K. But again, K2 is not considered an essential nutrient. Mm -hmm. And then he talks about how animal products contain K2 and I'm not sure if he mentioned, but natto is a a plant food that does contain K2. Mm -hmm. Um, But this group often does overlook an important point here and that is that the vitamin K2 in animal foods is a form of K2 called MK4. It's, it's, the bioavailability of this is very, very, very low. Mm-hmm. You absorb a tiny amount of it. The form of vitamin K2 in natto, the plant-based food, is MK7, which is very, very bioavailable. Right. That often gets overlooked in this, but it's, it's kind of uh, irrelevant to this whole point anyway yeah. because the, the, the main point is People don't need to supplement K2 that unless they are a postmenopausal woman with uh, osteoporosis or osteopenia uh, or perhaps some very, very rare circumstances where someone has a severely disrupted microbiome and cannot produce it. Yep. Um, 
But I am not aware of any evidence, good evidence that suggests that people should just supplement K2 routinely. So he's kind of just fabricated this whole story out of out of nowhere and the product's called Kale Buster. Yeah. I mean, he, he did exactly as you mentioned what Gundry did. He picked a he, he reduced a food down to a nutrient. Mm-hmm. So Gundry reduced beans down to lectins or tomatoes down yeah. to whatever. But I understand Gundry's line of thinking a bit more because lectin shield, it actually as silly as it is, the, it is meant to be a shield against the lectins you eat. Yeah. But Kale Buster, his product was just a vitamin K2 supplement. Yeah, this isn't like a take this tablet next time you eat your kale salad. No. It was, it was ditch the kale, take this instead. The product has nothing to do with kale. And it just, I have no idea how they sat down in a room when they were developing this product <laughs> and came up label. with Kale Buster as the name. Honestly, if there was an award for the worst name for any supplement <laughs> in the world, that's right up there. I agree. I, I think Lectin Shield is far more appealing than, Absolutely. than a Kale Buster. Yeah. Yeah. I think I think Gundry has done, as much as I despise the, the kind of... Uh, train of thought and this idea of scaring people off lectins because the evidence isn't there to support that. I think their meeting and their marketing yeah. <laughs> and branding is much more convincing and yeah. makes much more sense. Yeah. Kale Buster, <laughs> I don't even know what to say. Yeah. I mean, look, the, the point here is that if someone is inventing a problem and selling the solution, be careful. Uh, and the fact that this man has close to half a million followers and can reach a large audience is kind of scary. Mm. So to those out there that are following this this guy, understand that he might not be providing intellectual evidence-based public health advice and that... Mm. Might is, I would say, a bit generous. Sorry, that is generous. He probably isn't, definitely Mm. isn't. And (laughs) you can probably get away with eating your kale and you'll be fine. Mm -hmm. Your your sex shouldn't be painful. uh, And I think your gut will also remain intact. And you don't have to put butter... In your coffee. Yeah. In fact, you shouldn't. Yeah. Uh, we've, we've got a few things off our chest. This is great. <laughs> I feel so much lighter. Uh, this is awesome. All right. Should we counter that segment with some good news? We should. Okay. End on a high. Uh, have you brought in any good news? I week? told you before and, and uh, not that anyone else is actually interested in the, in the fact that my squat... <laughs> Has come good. It's funny you say that because you want to know what the good news was that I'm bringing in on your behalf is your step count <laughs> has improved so much. Actually, can Mate, you, can you pass me my phone? Yeah. And I'll, we're going to do a versus. I don't have the app. Oh, convenient. The app. Healthy health app. Convenient. I deleted it because I knew you were going to challenge me. Convenient. No, seriously, I don't have that app. It, it's a default. But you're, yeah, I deleted it on purpose. Today. I, I, no, you no, were worried. Months and months he ago. He was worried. Months ago. Months ago. I, I understand. I wear a device, which conveniently okay, ha, yeah. is dead. Oh, <laughs> okay. I'm on a bit of a streak. Yeah. So here's the last five days. For background, we spoke about the mortality benefits with increasing steps and the fact that that mortality benefit continues beyond 10,000 yep. up to 16, 17,000. So five days ago, I did 15,926. Solid. That's up there. It's up there. I then followed that up back to back, 12,751. Solid. Decent. 
took a step back, but <laughs> to take two steps forward. The next day, 12,715, so Solid. consistent. Yeah. The next day, 13,765. And then yesterday, a little bit less, 10,653. Solid. But there was a day when you did close to, it was over 15, close to 20. I remember you showed me, you sent me a screenshot, but yeah, that, how, uh, I want to know. 16,947. How, how are you getting these steps in? That's what I want to know. Like, what is, what have you changed? I don't have a car. <laughs> so you were forced into this. I have no car this Did you week? choose not to have a car? Yeah. Or you, you, like, as in, as in, did you say, you know what, not having a car is probably going to help me with getting my steps up or just conveniently? Well, I'm living car? now between Byron and Bondi. So my car in is in Byron. All right. And I figure that when I'm in Bondi, I don't need a car. No. So I just walk everywhere. Yeah. And the gym that I've been going to, that I've been enjoying at the moment, as you know, is up at Bondi Junction. Yeah. So that's a, that's a fair walk. It's uphill the whole way as well. Yeah. So these are... These are, these are not your, any you know, not ordinary flat, steps. Yeah, these are not flat steps. These are far from ordinary, These are heels. Yes. Yeah, I'm proud of you, man. I'm, a, I mean, it probably tells me how many flights. tells me everything. Yeah, it should actually. Yeah. But isn't it interesting how you, you just change one slight thing in your, in your lifestyle and all of a sudden that step count can just go through the roof. Are they spread across the day or do you think you're getting them in one big bulk? So I'd imagine your pre and post workout, you're getting a ton in mm -hmm. what about the other hours of the day are you getting a morning walk are you doing all that pretty even okay that's good. i don't sit down that much that's good i wouldn't sit down that often for more than 90 minutes without getting up and doing a bit of moving yeah oh, that's awesome have you got any good news um well that that was some good news that i brought in for you but <laughs> some headlines that i came across it would have uh, been bad news if your app was working yeah i'm sure of it <laughs> no man my steps through that mate i don't want to embarrass you but yeah, I, I double. I mean, if I was able to do more steps than you, it's, it's unlike. Look, you don't have your dogs here. I've got a very active mm. dog who I walk twice a day. I play golf eighteen holes at New South Wales Golf Course, which is a very mm. hilly, beautiful golf course in the national park. So I get I get fifteen to twenty thousand just at golf. Yeah. Well, next time bring in the the app so you can support that with yeah, some evidence. Yeah, bring in some evidence. Okay. Uh, anecdotal <laughs> n equals one evidence. Is that is that good enough yeah. on the hierarchy? All right, yeah. I'll bring it in. Uh, so my my good news was a couple of headlines I saw. One of them was that R.M. Williams invests $20 million in a plant-based leather uh, maker. So the reason I find this good news is because I don't think, well, maybe they do, but a lot of people, I didn't, I certainly didn't realize how destructive fashion industry is on, on, on climate and environment. Um, so to know that the biggest players in this field are actually investing in plant-based leather says a couple of things. It says that they understand that they're probably doing some damage that they don't want to do and maybe it's time to offset it. And that also that the actual textile manufacturers are producing a product that is good enough or, or better than the current product that they have in. So it should be unrecognizable to the consumer that what they're actually consuming, even though I'm sure they'll call it out as plant-based leather, it should look and feel just like mm. the real thing. Um, and I think that when you see a, a company like RM Williams, another company that's done it, there's, there's a whole list here. I mean, BMW have invested, Ralph Lauren, um, Alexander McQueen, Allbirds, Patagonia, H&M, the list goes on. Hermes, I think that's how you say it, Hermes. Hermes. Um, their bags may, be, may soon be made from mushrooms. So there's, there's another company called mm. Mycoworks that create sustainable alternatives mm. to leather. If you were stuck on an island with that bag, could you eat it? <laughs> 
Could you have a mushroom burger? How many calories per bag? I'm not sure um, if if it would keep you alive with calories, but yeah, technically, I guess you could eat it. Right? Mm -hmm. I don't know. Maybe we should ask their their team there. Mm -hmm. But um, so they're. I mean, that industry. It's a 400 billion dollar industry. So if you get the biggest players investing millions of dollars into this change, you can see the impact it'll have, and then hopefully the the consumer demand will actually you know, mm. alter these decisions that these other companies make mm-hmm. and more people jump on board. So I, I just find that, you know, it's good news. It, it's also, it brings up a broader question, which is something I wanted to ask you. When you see these companies, not just in the fashion space, but even in the nutrition space, you know, KFC, McDonald's, investing and putting Beyond Meat and other meat alternatives into their menus and providing this plant-based alternative do you think that these are companies that we should support mm-hmm. so that we can hopefully make a bigger difference? Or some I know that some some vegans tend to actually boycott these companies because they don't want to vote with their dollar mm. and support a company that's also killing animals. Where, where uh, do you sit? I see I see that argument and I hear that argument, but <laughs> I think when you fundamentally you break it down, these companies you've just mentioned are taking a small step in the right direction. Yeah. So you want to support that. <laughs> you know, if you're not supporting that, then essentially you're advocating for perfection. Mm. And perfection, we know, can be the enemy of good. Yeah. So, you know, I think, you know, many things that are great start very small. Yeah. And rather than boycotting these these companies, I think we will get far better outcomes in the long run yeah. if we support them, wrap our arms around them, celebrate the small changes that they're making that are positive. Of course, we want to make sure that we're not just getting caught up in greenwashing or some sort of marketing PR campaign and that it's real physical change that's, that's happening, yeah. 100%. Yeah. We don't want to be blindsided by that. But- I think not much is achieved by boycotting them. I agree. I think that supporting sort of new, let's say new companies come onto the market who are plant-based, right? Obviously, you want to support those companies, smaller companies, they're new, they're growing, you want to support that. But I I think by supporting already established very large corporations, companies who are probably having a larger environment, a negative environmental impact than these small companies can offset – by supporting these already existing companies, you can actually probably move the needle quicker. Mm. We can we can drive the direction that these companies go in by how we support them and, and the mm. demand for more plant-based products. So I think this is good news. I, I, <laughs> I don't buy any of these fashion labels that I've mentioned and I don't eat a KFC or McDonald's, but I think, again, broad public health messaging, I think that this is a step in the right direction. Is it That's, Hermes or Hermes? I think it's Hermes. Drop Hermes, the H. Drop the H. I'd say so. Okay. Someone will correct us in a comment. Um, no, I think it's all good stuff. And many ways these companies are responding to changes in societal kind of values and what the, the, the new generation's coming up, how what they want to see in a brand. Mm. But also I think for people that maybe haven't changed their values to see a company like this introducing this into their range – might spark some new ideas. Yeah. 
and might. So, so you, it can it can be them responding to the market, but then it can also influence That's a good point. the market. So, That's a good point. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure about boycotting. Yeah, agreed. Recommendations. Yep. Should we slide on over to those? Let's do it. You go. I am recommending a book, and we've spoken about Dr. Herman Ponser, PhD, who is arguably the world's expert on studying hunter-gatherer tribes, particularly the Hadza. He spent a lot of time living uh, with the Hadza along with one of his colleagues, uh, Brian Wood, I think, uh, is his name. And he has a book called Burn. And I have recommended this, not in our episodes, but I have recommended it in other podcasts before. This is the book without the cover. Yeah. It looks much better with the cover. Yeah. I often take those covers off though. Yeah, same. Those I'm sleeves. going to the beach yeah. or something. Yeah. Uh, but I, I think that this is a great book for anyone who's kind of confused about paleo diet, hunter-gatherer diets, seeing various claims online and wants to hear from an actual anthropologist who has spent time living with multiple tribes, um, documenting what they eat, how they live, and is really, really across all of the literature that's out there. And he puts it all, you know, packages it beautifully into this book called Burn, which is you know, far more uh, complex than, ju- than just how these tribes eat. There's a lot of information in here about energy expenditure and how exercise affects uh, body weight. So it's a really interesting read. Mm. And I have a, uh, a quote, a couple of quotes that I'd like to just read out of here and, and might give people a bit of an idea as to what they're in store for if they do grab a copy. So one quote that I think is very, it's, it's short, but it, it says a lot, is there is no single paleo diet full stop the other that i wanted to share is something that builds on our last episode we spoke about uh the kind of misrepresentation of the hearts of diet and bear grills post came up so ponza says the hearts chamane which are a tribe in bolivia and the schwa populations all get 65% or more of their calories each day from carbohydrates. Compare that to less than 50% for the typical American diet. So he's highlighting that these hunter-gatherer tribes actually consume more carbohydrates than someone eating the typical American diet. And they're known to be of lower BMI, healthier, less complications, whilst the Carbohydrates in general are often demonized as the reason mm. for those health issues mm. in, the, in the Western population. So we might be blaming the wrong thing. <laughs> he goes on to say, it's not just honey and tubers either. No wonder we've never observed ketosis among Hadza men and women. Their diet is about as far from being ketogenic as one could imagine. Oh, you just hurt some feelings, man. A lot of people are going to hear that and are going to be very upset. The Hadza, the lean, athletic Hadza population with not a drop of body fat have never been in ketosis. Well, sometimes facts (laughs) and emotions, my friend, (laughs) do not mix very well. That is true. But that that actually is – let's dig into that a little bit. So you would expect – this is is me talking here. I'm not talking on behalf of anyone. I would expect a tribe – who are hunter-gatherer tribe, in periods where they're not getting food, 
whether it's days or, or weeks, that they would enter ketosis, right? You'd expect that they're doing long fasts um, just based on food availability. But what it seems like here is that they actually are so good at gathering carbohydrate-rich mm-hmm. foods over the day that even if they can't hunt an animal, they're still getting some food in. So that's probably why they never get into ketosis, right? That, does does yeah. that make sense? Is that fair to say? So they, they're finding food frequently enough to never actually need to go into ketosis mm-hmm. and, and produce ketones. Mm. And I think honey is a big part of that story yeah. in terms of stopping them going into ketosis. You know, Many months of the year, 20 to 30% of their calories are coming from honey. Yeah, that's a, it's a really interesting. Oh, that's awesome. I'm going to definitely check that book so out. So Burn uh, by Herman Ponser, PhD. I'll put that into the show notes. Love it. Really good. Um, so this week, I don't have a book as I'm still making my way through Orwell, uh, but I did watch a documentary or a four-part series called Bad Vegan, which was really surprising. It's not actually about veganism. It's not going to teach you about how to eat a healthy diet. It's actually got almost nothing to do with veganism. Oh, it's not about veganism. Yeah, so just on that note, I, I thought that their title was definitely strategic in that, you know, when you look through Netflix and you're, br- you know, mm. browsing for things to look for, often the food ones do take off. There's mm. a lot of- Is it fiction or nonfiction? You know, it's a true story about a woman in New York who in the 90s, I believe, starts a vegan restaurant, a raw mm. vegan restaurant, which basically just becomes extremely popular- and a, a magnet for celebrities and, mm. and all these important VIP people. What's the name of that restaurant? Um, I've forgotten the name. Okay. There we go. My vegan brain is failing me. <laughs> I've forgotten the name. But uh, it was like a raw food vegan restaurant, very famous, a lot of press, a lot of newspaper articles. And she had this rise to fame. And she was a beautiful, striking girl who, I mean, I'm not going like, to spoil it for people, but essentially the entire series is actually about fraud and her becoming a fugitive and it's just fascinating to see how a person enters her life at a critical time when she's vulnerable and influences her to make some really really terrible decisions and it's all around money Mm -hmm. all around money and and being defrauded um and it's the 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 part that makes this so interesting is she narrates the story from her perspective she's in the documentary right and she's explaining what happened and I imagine she went into it thinking, you know, I can sort of right some wrongs here by being a part of this documentary. I can expose the truth, tell the, the story of what really happened. But the producers of the of the doco somewhat- She doesn't come off that well. I don't think she does at all. Yeah. Interesting. I, I, I did not, I, I didn't leave that doco going, you know what, the poor, poor girl. Mm. I thought, I think- I'd love to hear from her what her thoughts are. Of the final I think product. she did come out and, and mention that she wasn't happy with how it ended. Um, mm. But nevertheless, it, it's, a, it's a really great uh, four-part series to watch. So, mm. so yeah, four episodes. I think okay. each one's about an hour from memory. So highly recommend Bad Vegan for those who haven't seen it. Probably everyone's seen it by now. Okay. But for you. Well, I will uh, Yeah, I'll make sure that as my homework from today. Yeah, it's really good. I will uh, do that before our next episode. Sounds good, man. Anything else? No, I think there, there is a final kind of reminder I want to put out there. Not so much a reminder. It's the first time that we've really mentioned this. Uh, we want to add another segment to this uh, episode that we're doing together where we 
take some questions from folks in the community and we throw them around and and answer them during the episode or comment on them where we can. And we thought that the best place to leave these questions would be in the comment section on YouTube. And so if you have any question for Drew, for myself, it could be based on a previous episode. It could just be a question that you have about your health. It could be related to nutrition. It could be related to exercise, sleep, whatever it is. Put it into the comments section. Uh, we'll do our best to answer it. If we're unsure of the answer, we'll go away and research. We'll make calls to scientists and professors and doctors within our network and uh, do our best to, to cover it. And I thought there was a, a quote from Joe Rogan that is fitting while we're talking about comment section of YouTube. Do you ever get into the comment section? Not, not on YouTube, no. Yeah, I, I've always really hated YouTube for that reason. Yeah. It's like very it's negative. Nasty, yeah. It's just very negative. Yeah. Um, but Joe Rogan, he, he did a tweet. He said, do you think Michael Jordan goes around leaving rude slash hateful comments on YouTube and Instagram. <laughs> Being negative all the time isn't cool. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, you, you, you can see that in most happy people who are successful and doing productive things with their time mm. aren't looting themselves in comment sections. I, I do think there is some productivity to leaving a comment that is instructive, not nasty mm. comments. I Obviously, I'm never saying to leave nasty, mean, bullying-style comments, but I do think that, like, for example, if I do come across a post that I think has a message that's either controversial or, or that I'm confused mm. by, the comment section can clear it up pretty quickly. You just have a scan through and you see mm. some opinions and you can get a, another take on a topic. Mm. So obviously like when, when someone puts out a tweet or it's very one-sided whilst the comment section allows for conversation. So I, I understand the reason for it, but yeah, the darkness of YouTube mm. and Twitter comments. Nah, not no, for, I agree not with for you. Me. I, think that, I think you can have respectful dialogue in the comments. Yeah, you're very good at I that. I think you have to say. be, you're like, you have to be cognizant <laughs> of the fact that the written word can come across very differently. Yeah, that's true. So I often write something out and then I rewrite it and yeah, I rewrite yeah. it because I'm almost kind of I'm putting myself in their shoes and thinking that, oh, that's, that's, that's going to trigger them. Mm. They're yeah. not going to answer my question here. They're just going to think this guy's a jerk. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah that's not productive. So yeah. I think using comments is super important, but you can do it in a thoughtful, constructive yeah. way. And it will, you know, generally then the response that you get will be more helpful for whatever you're trying to clarify 100%. as opposed to some sort of just ad hominem message back to you telling you to, to uh, find another page to comment on. <laughs> here, here. I, I agree with that. Completely. Okay. How do you think we did? Man, I really enjoyed that. I mean, I've enjoyed every episode I've ever done, but that was mm. extremely fun. There was one thing that I did miss when we were talking about the debate and then we moved to the blood tests. Uh, I wanted to mention the guidelines that I mentioned there, the European Society of Cardiology, I will put a link to those into the show note and you can refer to table eight. Table eight goes through healthy diet characteristics. Right. And I think that's just a great evidence-based summary of top line characteristics, things to think about when you are constructing your meals, when you're at the grocery store, if you want to lower your risk of having a heart attack or having a stroke. Awesome. Cool. Thanks, thanks man. That was... Uh... Thanks, as buddy. fun as always. Appreciate it. So happy you got 
few things off your chest. I've got plenty more. You okay. wait. Yeah. Well, we'll do it again soon. <laughs> we will. All right, man. Thank, Thank you, my you. friend. See you. Thank you for joining me for this episode and your interest in science-based conversation. I hope you enjoyed it and found the information covered interesting and instructive. If you did and you'd like to show your support for the show, please subscribe to our YouTube channel where you can stay up to date with new episodes and watch them in video format. Yes, the full-length videos. Please also consider subscribing to the show on the Spotify and or Apple Podcast app, wherever you enjoy listening to podcasts. You can also leave a review on Apple or Spotify. Again, a great way to support the show and make our content more discoverable for others to enjoy and learn from. If you have any comments about the episodes, suggestions for future episodes, including guests you'd like to see on the show, or questions that you'd like to have answered, please leave those in the comments section on YouTube. I myself and my team will take note of these comments when planning future episodes. Finally, the best way to support the show and receive discounts on products we love is by checking out our sponsors at theproof.com forward slash friends. Enjoy your week, stay well, and I look forward to catching you in the next episode.